Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is respectfully dedicated to the memory of Red Bull Air Race champion pilot Hannah Sarch, whose life was tragically lost on September the 8th. An adventurer, a gifted aviator, Hannes was well known for his generosity and kindness of spirit, and we were privileged to have met and interviewed him on many occasions. His dedication, his intensity and sense of humour were always evident. Hannes Arch will be sorely missed. We're very fortunate to have him on the line now from Austria. Hi, Hannes, how are you? Hello, everybody down there on the other side of the world. I'm fine, I'm very fine. Okay, we're here with uh, Hannes Ark. Hannes, uh, welcome to Australia, and uh, how did it go for you today after qualifying? Thank you very much. No, I'm quite happy after the qualifying day. I mean, I could do two really fast times. Uh, unfortunately, I needed another tenth of a second to beat Paul. So, uh, but I know where I can get that, and hopefully, I can do the same performance tomorrow, a little bit faster, and fun. everything works out. I always thought like that must be the MX. It's much more difficult to fly than an Edge, and an Edge is a simple aircraft. It's really simple to fly, and basically, I don't need those wingtips because my Edge flies so stable. So from that point of view, I don't want to mess around with those modifications and rather spend the money into engine modifications. I mean, I think uh, I mean what I'm doing right now, like full air racing, is the most serious conservative job I ever did in my life compared to what I did before. Before I was like, for a couple of years, it was a paragliding uh, test pilot, which means that every day in the morning you look out the window, the weather is nice, then you go up there and test some new gliders. So I help to uh, design new gliders for the market. Or, or and, and I had some pretty scary moments out there. Also, I used like my rescue canopy, I think six or seven times in my life, just testing those those paragliders. And uh, besides that, I, I started to develop aerobatic flying with paragliders, which which was uh, 10, 15 years ago, something completely new. So I was really 100% in that sport with also World Cups and, and flying all over the world. I said to myself, and I briefed my team and said, look guys, uh, that's what we owe to ourselves, you know, because we are we are racing guys. We love the race, you know, we love what we do. So we, we stick uh, to the air race and we, we do it till, till uh, the last race. And that's what we did. Also, uh, we owed it to our fans, you know. Which track was your favorite this year? Hmm, that's a good question. I think Perth was a very difficult one from uh, from from the tactics point of view, a combination of tactics and uh, trying to find the right line. Rio de Janeiro, I liked Rio very much. It was a very smooth track. It was not like an action-packed track. Um, uh, it was you had to fly very fine, very much to, to find the detail to take on your energy. But most, I think, I loved uh, winter. Also, I nearly crashed, but winter was <laughs> was was a cool track, you know. <laughs> yeah, New York was interesting. New York for me, especially for me as an Austrian, you know, because I never have been in New York, and then as an Austrian growing up in a small place, mountains, landscape, nature around, and then you, you're down there, and the first time you approach the track, you face the skyline of Manhattan, and this this uh, big, big uh, town just in front of you, you know, with all the history and all that, that emotions involved there, you know. So that was that was quite cool to approach there and I had the problems to focus uh, when I approached the first training. But I mean, once in the track, the track is the same than any other track. 
Uh, playing crazy down under. Okay. Hi, this is Hannes Arch, uh, Red Bull Aries Vice World Champion in 2010, World Champion in 2008. Well, and you are listening uh, to Crazy Plane Down Under. <laughs> That's excellent, Hannes. We really appreciate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the Austrian playing in there now. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we certainly wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Oh, thank you very much, guys. And as I said, I think it's really cool if we got guys like you guys who are going more into details, treating that like a sport and showing it to the people that it's not just a measure, it's a serious game we're playing. And I think that helps all of us. So thanks a lot. Great job from your side. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, we, we hope to talk to you again sometime in, in the future. Sure, anytime. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association of Australia, providing a unified voice for Australian pilots and aircraft owners and ushering in a new era of positive political advocacy. Join today at aopa.com.au and help strengthen the voice of our industry for those that need to hear it. And by Oz Runways, Australia's number one electronic flight bag for iPad and Android. Haven't tried Oz Runways yet? Well, what are you waiting for? Get your free 30-day trial today at ozrunways.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 128 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Fisher and joining me as always, Grant McHeron. And uh, Grant, I guess as I welcome you to the show, we played that uh, tribute there to Hannah Sarch. All still feeling a bit numb about that. It's been a few weeks uh, since the very sad news of his uh, passing. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, we just wanted to kick the show off with a bit of a bit of a tribute to him. Yeah, uh, very, very sad and shocking news, actually. It was, uh, it was a big surprise to hear it. I really didn't think we'd be losing him uh, I mean you know he's always been doing some uh, very extreme things but coming back in a helicopter uh, uh, wow yeah I, I was pretty shocked to hear it yeah you know it's, it's interesting how many times did we I mean we interviewed him four times in fact I had the privilege of meeting him a couple of times at a couple of the uh, the air races and uh, you know I won't pretend to uh, know him all that well but I really enjoyed talking to him and uh, you know we've you know had the privilege of having him along with us at certain times through the journey on this program and he, he talked often about his love of flying helicopters and you know, I guess he died doing what he loved, but uh, ironically, you know, we've lost two Red Bull Air Race pilots now, and uh, neither of them at the Red Bull Air Race, considering, uh, you know, the, the risks that they uh, they take really doing that sort of uh, racing at such low levels, but uh, there's now Hannes and uh, Alejandro McLean before him. Well, actually, mate, it's it's worse than that. It's actually three, because we also lost uh, Mike Mangold last year, oh, and, of course, uh, yeah, when he was course. taking off in a jet crash, so... Yeah, uh, look, I, I think it's also indicative that when they're doing the Red Bull Air Race, they're they're in race mode and they are, you know, it, it looks risky, but they they know what they're doing. They practice, they rehearse, and they're on top of it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, it's just uh, just a really horrible thing. So look, we don't want to dwell on it too much. We know uh, that uh, you know there's been a lot said about it, and you know we don't know how or why it happened. Uh, it's not our place here to speculate about that, and we're not going to. But uh, really, Grant, I guess uh, on behalf of uh, all the listeners of, uh, of the community of listeners here and uh, everyone here at PCDU, we just want to extend our, uh, our heartfelt condolences to Hannah Sarch's family and all his friends and followers that uh, it can be cliched at times to say that uh, you know we were, we were lucky to have him and uh, the aviation world in particular is a, a better place for having had him with us uh, he was really a gifted uh, gifted aviator and uh, you know really thanks Hannah Sarch for entertaining us for so many years it was uh, a really really a privilege to uh, be part of that indeed mate indeed but uh, moving on to uh, something uh, a little better somewhat more upbeat 
I believe we've got a fair whack of content in this show once again. Yes, Grant, and it's actually pretty recent. Well, most of it is, yes. Coming up a bit later in the show, Grant, you were recently at the uh, Canberra Balloon Spectacular, as you all want to do. You're at uh, most things to do with ballooning, of course, being the <laughs> program's resident balloonatic. And, uh, Grant, uh, why don't you run us through some of the uh, the plethora of content you collected there? Well, actually, it was collected over this year's and the previous year's event. And this year, I or two years ago, I was there as an observer from the Australian Ballooning Federation. I wasn't actually flying in the event but uh, went up for a couple of flights with friends and uh, caught up with a whole lot of folks on the ground so I've got a number of interviews there was also one done even before then with um, uh, Phil and Sean Kavanagh from the Kavanagh Balloon Company they manufacture balloons here in Australia and it's talking with them about uh, the history of uh, of their ballooning company and and to a degree of, of sport ballooning here in Australia and uh, also the development of the new burners that they've got on, on available for, uh, for your b- balloons if you want to buy them. They're uh, very, very impressive new burners. Then from the Canberra Balloon Spectacular, uh, I've got John Wallington. He's the flight director. Uh, this year, I was the assistant flight director working with him. Don Whitford, the uh, meteorologist. He's, Don has forgotten more about meteorology than I will ever know, and he's an amazing guy and a lot of fun. Got a couple of chats with some of the uh, visiting pilots from overseas. We've got some uh, chats with some of the local pilots uh, that I, got, I know that have, uh, are flying in Canberra, and including Ruth Wilson. She was Australia's first female commercial balloon pilot. And, yeah, so there's that. There's also uh, a chat in there with squadron leader Damien Gilchrist. Um, until recently, he was the, uh, the the primary balloon pilot for a few years before he's been rotated out to another gig. And so I talked to him about uh, his his career. Um, he's an ex-New Zealand Air Force pilot. And then also I, I talked to Nick Purvis. Uh, he's from the UK, works with Cameron Balloons. And we were talking about the brand new special shape that made for the RAAF, which looks like a giant fighter pilot helmet. It's really pretty cool. So we talk about that. And then I come back to Damien Gilchrist and... Uh, Ask him what it's like to fly that new balloon. Now, Grant, of course, uh, RAF pilot helmets have been, uh, you know, a lot in the news lately, and what particularly with the F-35, a uh, very expensive helmet. What sort of special shape helmet did they do? Um, they did a pretty standard one. It's not the, um, it's not your hammocks, and it's not the F-35 mega helmet. It's it's a, a standard helmet with visor and uh, oxygen mask. Well, at that size, it would have been a mega helmet, you know, regardless. Well, it's an interesting little uh, piece that comes out is that uh, there's more panels and material in just the oxygen mask than there normally is in an entire balloon of equivalent size. Now, now, Grant, uh, coming up a bit later after all the balloon stuff, can you believe that we discovered to our horror a year or two back that there is actually a member of Team PCDU that is not, wait for it, are you sitting down, has not seen Top Gun? I know. It's shocking. Well, we rectified that. In fact, Anthony, the infrequent flyer Simmons. It's been a couple of years since we've had Anthony on the show, mate. I know. It has been a while. It has been a while. But, uh, yeah, we found out when we found out that Anthony hadn't been there, Steve and Pam and I decided, let's take Anthony to see Top Gun. And Kit decided to come along, my lovely wife. She thought, yep, I'm going to come along and watch it as well because she doesn't mind Top Gun, as you'll hear. There's a couple of scenes she quite likes. But uh, we all got together and I recorded uh, um, a couple of chats, one before the show about what our expectations were going to be and one afterwards uh, back in Stephen Pam's car before we all went back home. And, uh, yeah, it's a really hilarious one. We get uh, Kit's, um, Kit's debut appearance on the show and Stephen's got some good comments in there as well. And, in fact, Stephen uh, won one of the door prizes, you might say. 
at the event. And uh, yeah, but the, the highlight is definitely um, Anthony Simmons' view of Top Gun. Yes, or as Stephen Pan would say, hashtag Top Gun. That's the one. Or hashtag the view from the top. Gun. Yes, exactly. So uh, Anthony Simmons in his with his usual sartorial elegance. Did he go there dressed, uh, you know, in a, in a bow tie and a tux and all that sort of stuff? I can imagine he would have done that. Shockingly, no, but um, definitely uh, feeling very tweedy and smoking lounge type for, uh, approach. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's actually given away the bags recently, mate. Did you know that? Yeah, I've heard. I've heard he's no longer smoking. I mean, who knew? Good on him. Well, you know, we rely on that rather Marlborough set of uh, tonsils to provide us with voiceovers. I hope that doesn't affect it. Well, we'll find out in the near future, I'm sure. Well, even if it does, that's probably a good thing. So good on you, Anthony, for that. But uh, I'll tell you what, Grant, somebody else who's uh, probably used to dressing better than most of us is Owen's Up, and uh, we recorded an interview with Owen oh, four or five weeks back now, covering, of course, the release of his recent book, Without Precedent. And Grant, uh, I don't know whether you've had a chance to read through it yet. I've read it front to back and back to front. It's, uh, you know, Owen's a fantastic writer. This is far and above his best effort, in my view, covering the remarkable career of his father, Phil's Up. That's right, mate. It's a great read. I I've been seeing all the reviews. I've heard from what you've had to say. And what I've got through it so far is pretty fantastic. It's definitely um, the current book for me. But uh, I actually caught up with, speaking of balloons and Owen's up and so on, during the Canberra Festival, I took Owen for a balloon flight. And uh, we uh, we took off just behind the two RAAF balloons, the normal one and the special shape. And uh, I was actually doing some formation work with the RAAF. Who knew? Uh, we were just... We didn't even have to do, use the radio. We were just able to yell between baskets about you know what we were intending to do and change positions a couple of times. And uh, then they went off to a different area as I took different winds and headed uh, headed down and uh, dipped the lake very briefly and then went off to um, the far end of where everyone was going to land. And it was a lot of fun. He absolutely loved it. We had a blast. No, I think he actually wrote an article about that, didn't he, Mike? He did in Australian Aviation. Oh, our favourite aviation magazine. We should just drop That's that one in there. Of- Jeez, we haven't said that for a while, have we, mate? <laughs> It's been a while. Well, in fact, we haven't done intros to any shows for a while, and this one might have been one of the longest. But uh, let's get into it, Grant, and uh, let's start off by saying hello to Owen's Up. It's a great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, good friend of the show, in fact, all-round nice guy, author, journalist, uh, well, you know, occasional airplane pilot, Owen's up, or should we say... Captain, my captain. Captain Owen's up, yes, I've been waiting to play that for about half an hour, Owen. How are you, mate? Very good, Stephen Grant. It's good to chat with you once again. Jeez, now, last time we talked to you, you are only a mere first officer, and here you are. We, we feel like it's royalty back on the show here, mate. No, no, I wouldn't say that, mate. It's uh, it's, it's a seat change, I'd say, is the best way to describe it. Uh, well, let's not... Let's not talk about airlines now. I've got to tell you something, mate. I, uh, I've been flying this weekend, mate, and I, I've done something that I, I vowed. In fact, I think I vowed to you I would never do. I went up in a tiger moth. Well, it's, it's good to see that you've come to the dark side of the horse. <laughs> and, uh, did you enjoy it? Well, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, they go? The step, how, mate. how did they go getting a leather helmet of that size? <laughs> well, you know, it was a challenge. We sewed two of them together. It was fun. All <laughs> right. Okay. No, it's um. I've always loved that style of flying. Uh, so it's it's good that you've you've experienced it yourself, Steve. It was very different, as uh, you know, as most people would know. My my flying experience is limited to you know Cessna and Piper and all that sort of usual stuff. And uh, yeah, it was it was very very different. It was rather enjoyable, I must say. Mind you, sitting in the cockpit, I found you can't see much unless you looked uh, extremely left or extremely right. Yeah, yeah. You find that with a, a lot of tail wheel aircraft. Uh, Anyway, but um, once the tail comes up, you, you've got a bit of forward view. 
it's uh, it's different, but that's that's one of the joys of it. I think. I, no, I, think, I think in Steve's case, it was because he was crouched down so low and strapping himself really, really tightly because <laughs> there was no roof. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, it's actually I've never I've never flown in an open cockpit either, so that was another experience. But uh, no, we were out there at Lilydale at Vintage Airways. They've got uh, they've got a Stearman and a Wirraway and two Tiger Moths. Would you believe? And they do lots of joy flights on the weekend. Uh, this weekend just gone as we record this was just a perfect weekend for flying. It was really nice weather, and uh, yeah, we just got up there and potted out over the Yarra Valley. And uh, I, I tell you what, I mean, doing some turns is is a bit different in that. I um I, I had a lot of trouble initially keeping it coordinated in the turn, but uh, that took a bit of practice. Yeah, you wouldn't be the first person that's found that particularly people who've um, sort of grown up on on nose wheel fairly straightforward modern aircraft uh, because most of those you can almost like coordinated turn with your feet on the floor now the tiger moth definitely it has a tendency for adverse yaw and you, you have to genuinely coordinate the turn with the use of rudder and aileron and that's probably one of the once again you enjoyable aspects of flying aircraft like that it's um a little bit of a challenge and, and i think we all like a challenge when we're flying now and again yes and the other thing i was really uh, impressed with was how quickly it got off the ground considering i'm not exactly a small guy as most people know but uh, i thought we might use up all the runway there at lilydale but we got off quite quickly actually oh well, that's good it sounds like it was all nice and straight and nice power producing engine up the front there you go. You off the ground well well the engine kept running i was very happy about that mate <laughs> I shouldn't say that actually because the, the people out there at, uh, at Vintage Airways they were fantastic it was it was a really good experience I, I have to say in all seriousness so there you go mate I've, I've finally done it I, I reckon we can go back through the archives on the podcast here and find where I vowed I would never go in one I think it was one of the shows you were on with us yeah I, I, I do recall you saying it more than once um, but uh now that you've done it, I'm sure you'll want to go back. Actually, it's not a wear away they've got there. It's a Windjeel, another aircraft I said I'd never go in. So uh, who knows what might happen? As soon, as soon as Steve texted me and said, hey, I just had my flight in the, in the Tiger, I said, great, Windjeel next. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, they've got one here. Yeah. In fact, as <laughs> you're right there, I'm just wondering, Steve, most people have a bucket list of aircraft they want to fly. It sounds like you've got a list of uh, <laughs> aircraft that you don't particularly want to fly. Yes, and I'm achieving it pretty well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, I'd be very happy, uh, Owen, uh, you know, Oh, folks, Owen and I have talked a lot about this, about buying a 172, and uh, I think, Owen, you've tried to talk me out of it a lot, but I'd still be happy to uh, one day add that to the Steve Bishop fleet. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm a simple man. He hasn't even come flying in a balloon with me, I tell you. Yes. There's something else I said I'd never get in, so who knows what might happen. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, what I won't fly in, uh, Grant. Uh, in fact, we're here to talk about Owen's latest book, Without Priest in it. Owen, uh, fantastic reception. It's been released now for probably a month or two as we record this. It's out in uh, ebook format and in paperback, of course, and uh, you must be really happy with the reception it's got. Overwhelmed probably the word, Steve. It's, uh, it's caught me a little off guard. I-, I was happy with how the book turned out after probably 10 years or more work, but the fact that people are reading it literally all over the world in all formats and the reviews that have come in have meant more than just the, the star rating per se. There's been people who actually served on meteors in Korea who, who complimented it for its historical accuracy. There are grown men saying that it, it moved them emotionally. So the reviews have just been fantastic. It, it makes all of the work worthwhile. It really does. So I couldn't have asked for better. It's, it's growing and growing every day. And, um, the fact that this story is being shared by so many people is the, the best reward I can get. 
and anyone that knows you, Owen, knows that you're a very passionate guy about just about really about everything that you do. But uh, you've always been very passionate uh, in your writing, and particularly about your father and his career. And this book is all about your father's uh, really unique military career. Yes, it is. I guess if I was to give a thumbnail sketch of it, it's a chap who initially joined the Air Force in World War Two, and then when they discovered they had enough navigators. He transferred to the Army, became a commando and saw active service in New Guinea. And at the cessation of hostilities, he uh, was on one of the first vessels into Hiroshima after the dropping of the atomic bomb. And in 1947, he finally made it back to Australia, spent a year cane cutting, re-enlisted in the Air Force as a, a mechanic, learned to fly privately. And it's a, a story within itself how he ended up on pilot's course, but he did and ultimately flew 201 combat missions in Korea, flying fighters with 77th Squadron. And then his civil career, uh, having returned, he was a, a RAF instructor, but he was a civil instructor. He was in the early days of cloud seeding in an attempt to make rain. He flew Super Connies for Qantas and DC-33 in New South Wales, towed targets. And the last decade was flying the air ambulance out of Sydney. So it was around 23,000 hours and the best part of uh, 100 aircraft types of a really diverse range. But once again, there was the army and cane cutting and all sorts of things mixed in there as well. And not only uh, with the flying part, but I'm intrigued about uh, the time his time in the army before he he got into flying. Um, and, and he must have done some. Well, just reading through the book here, he's done some amazing things uh, in the war. Yeah, he, he always reflected that he only really got up into action at uh, the final final weeks of the war. He'd been picked out for commando training and. To a degree, that delayed his active service because he went to Canungra to the Jungle Warfare Centre for further training. But, yes, it was probably the, the chapter of his life that he spoke least about until I was of somewhat maturity in my own right. I was well into my 20s before he discussed much about the Army. And even then, there were a couple of tales in there which are rather confronting, and I actually was told those by other commandos that were there at the time. He didn't really share them. He made passing comments to some of those anecdotes, but it was only when I was sitting at one chap's house at Mooloola Bar and he asked his wife to leave the room and that he gave me the full details of it. So it was a bit of a voyage of discovery for me about uh, who my father really was, that layer below the, the man I knew. And how did you go about the research? I mean, did he leave a lot of, um, you know, memorabilia around or a lot of, uh, you know, uh, diaries or anything like that? I mean, the, the book is, you know, very detailed in, in going through all of that career. So, like you say, it's 10 years of research. Tell us a bit about that process. Yeah, it's multi-pronged in many ways. You have your first-hand anecdotes that were related by him uh, in his living years. You have his logbook, and particularly his Korean logbook, where he flew the 201 missions. He's made comments about against every second or third mission about how many holes were in his aircraft, whether he hit a train or a bridge on that rocket attack, etc. So you've got the diaries and maps and charts. So a blend, I would say, of anecdotes, timelines and historical records painted the picture. One thing I did, which also helped limit the size of the book, was with the military operations, I wanted to find a documented reference to the anecdote to include it in the book. So there are some anecdotes, some of which were, were rather um, entertaining, that I've actually not included because I 
couldn't find documented evidence pertaining to them. But everything else, yes, that's in the book, there's some reference, even though it may be an obscure one, somewhere in a diary somewhere. Did you spend an awful lot of time in, um, like, for your military research, was that at the Canberra War Memorial? Predominantly, yes, in the research centre at the War Memorial. Uh, A lot of files I also requested through the War Memorial and the National Archives, so I had paper hard copies. And some of the files have been digitised. So it was a combination of all of those. Uh, I truly enjoyed my time at the, the War Memorial Research Centre there, though. It's um, an amazing place. That the things they can wheel out of that trolley are the actual documents that his hands touched 50, yeah. 60 years ago. And uh, to have that tactile connection, sometimes not with something that he necessarily touched, but to see him called Godfrey Four as opposed to Dad, to see <laughs> the markings on the aircraft and, and what he said in quotation marks uh, really gave it a, a really strong link that seemed to bridge time in an instant. I understand a number of his aircraft are actually uh, in the War Memorial themselves. Yes, in the back, I've, I've done an annex or an appendice, I should say, to the... Um, the book of the aircraft that he flew that are either still flying or in museums. I I cut it out with sort of his recent civil aircraft to a high degree because that list would just be very, very significant. (laughs) But uh, the actual Meteor jet that he did his first combat sortie in, that is the Gloucester Meteor on display at the Australian War Memorial. There's a Meteor at uh, Boscombe Down now that he flew. The Meteor at Fighter World he flew. And the There's four aircraft actually at the RAAF Museum at Point Cook that he actually flew. I think it was the DC-3, the Vampire that they've got there, the Meteor Mark 7, and there was one other, uh, the Tiger Moth, the Tiger Moth. So there were four aircraft at the RAF Museum that he actually flew those aircraft. So it makes a very interesting little read at the back, and I've had some readers uh, messaging me through my website saying that they're doing a little bit of a trail, but when they go to these museums, they tick off the aircraft, which is is interesting. But uh, once again, it gives a very tactile, a real touch to the book. Uh, a connection, I guess, to the reader, to the, the actual person involved. Oh, and we've talked uh, many times on this show to, to many current day military pilots, and we've talked a lot about um, you know how they progress through and, and the way they do it in in the modern era. But uh, obviously, that was very different when your father went through. You mentioned the Tiger Moth, but uh, talk to us about some of the other aircraft that he went through on his way up to flying the Meteor. Yeah, it was very different indeed. The uh, Tiger Moth from there, you went to the Wirraway, which in itself was a, a fair step up, and then the first twin-engine aircraft was the Airspeed. Oxford, which had fixed pitch wooden propellers. So there was no feathering or real asymmetrics to, to think about. You still had a, a wooden prop windmilling out there on one side. So from there, he went on to Mustangs and the conversion, because the Mustangs are single seater, they flew the wheel away from the back seat and used to land it flapless to get used to higher speed approaches with, with very little forward visibility. And then once you'd done a number of hours on the wheel away, single seat at the back, they sent you in on the Mustang. Probably the biggest step up was leaving the Mustang to go to the Jets. That was to the Vampire, and at the time they only had single-seat Vampires. So that meant that his first jet, first nose wheel, first pressurise, uh, was the Vampire, and it was solo. Wow. They, they had about a 40, 50-page little handbook 
which he could touch drill everything blindfolded. In fact, I remember sitting at the traffic lights and he could touch drill in the Toyota Crown, his vampire and meteor checklist still when I was a kid. But he could do everything blindfolded. The chap had supervised the engine start and then off you went. So it was fairly uh, seat-of-the-pants conversion training. Uh, they had the luxury of the two-seat meteor when they got to Japan. They did about two or three hours on that, two or three hours on the single seat, and then off to Korea and on your way. There's similar stuff. I know it's the, the training method is quite different, but I know a number of uh, XF-18 pilots who can do their, all their checks and drills and everything, you know, just totally, you just call them on it and bang, they can do it right away, right in front of you there, no matter what. And it's, it's just a matter of being drilled into you that this is what you've got to do. Yeah, well, when he trained me, actually, he made me have to do the same thing on every aircraft type he converted me on, that I had to touch drill everything blindfolded, basically. There's uh, a lot to be said for that. Yeah, he always used to say those dark and stormy nights when the alternators failed and you can't see anything. A, have your torch in the same place in your nav bag, but B, know where everything fundamentally is. Isn't it interesting? Yep. Because uh, one of the things I've noticed in you know from when I when I started flying uh, back in about 1992 to now is that um, even in general aviation, people seem to rely a lot more heavily these days on written checklists and making sure that they're going through it rather airline style. Whereas you know back in the day, even uh, when I was learning to fly, you know it was all Tim Fish and Bumpo and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's interesting that uh, military pilots are still drilled to do it the more traditional way. Yeah, checklists are really that in that you should, if you use them in the purest sense, you know your scan. You do your scans from memory, and then the checklist is to check that you've done it. It's not a read and do, technically, a checklist. Uh, but when you're getting in the general aviation environment and people aren't flying as regularly, certainly uh, a checklist in a read and do sense is a very good way to um, ensure that you've covered all the bases. And it's a great uh, final filter for people, when they're, particularly when you're not flying all the time. But in, in a lot of us, this is like in, in airline operations, you actually do your scan and then from memory and then the checklist verifies that you've done the scan correctly. It's actually interesting, just as an aside, they're starting to move into that for uh, in my industry, actually, which is something we've never done. Everything in, in railways has to be done by memory. Um, yeah, it's, um, I can see very much why, why it's the case these days to, to have those checklists, et cetera, both from an operational sense and, I guess, in a litigious society, too. It's a, another filter. Yeah, very true. Well, I mean, even with balloons, um, we've got our checklists and, you know, they're talking to a doctor the other day and they're taking on the, the checklist concept and tallying everything in and out and not doing it from memory because at the end of a long stint, they want to have the paperwork there to make sure they didn't forget it. But uh, yeah, the checklists are a part of it and it's a great way of making sure you don't lose stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and as you said there, Grant, you can apply them across all sorts of industries. It, it isn't purely a an, an aviation-centric yeah. procedure, but, but there's a number of things where other industries are starting to catch up with aviation in terms of CRM and all sorts of uh, fields of endeavour. Owen, oh, uh, I was reading a chapter just uh, before we started here. I was sort of scanning through again, and uh, there was a great one in there where you were talking about um, him flying the Mustang around the lakes over Canberra and uh, trying to have a competition to see how, how low he could get to the water, if he could make his shadow merge with the water. That's uh, I don't know that they'd get away with that sort of stuff these days. No, I don't think they would. Uh, it was actively encouraged. I had extensive talks with the chap who's mentioned in the book, Jim Fleming, who uh, had a distinguished fighter career himself, retired, I think, as an air vice marshal. And Jim had been to Korea on Mustangs. And one of the things they found that they make attacks on targets down into a valley, then they pull up and they have to somehow get back out of the valley. So they used to go down to the south of Canberra 
quieten them out and fly down in the valleys there as part of their, their conversion training. But the other thing that they were very big on was low flying and really low flying. And Jim did relate that the first time he took my father out in the Mustang and got him to fly low, 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 he said, Dad was sort of half-edging, looking back up at him, you want me to go lower? And he was like, yeah. And he said then by the end of it, he was one of the, the, the biggest advocates of low flying you've ever seen. But uh, the, the initial part of, you know, play make your shadow disappear, I'm like, George was a, a bit of a pastime. Well, there you go, Grant. Uh, that's something you can probably achieve in the balloon pretty well, I reckon. Uh, well, yeah, I've done quite a bit of uh, low level just above the tops of the crops and things like that. But uh, I'm not normally looking at my shadow disappearing. I'm generally trying to uh, watch out for swirl lines and things like that. Oh, and with your dad's, um, I'm just interested with your dad's experience flying the Mustang. And those of us who have never flown one and just look with awe from the ground and just marvel at what a really a wonderful, graceful, awesome sounding aircraft it is. And, and we all have a love for it. How was it for someone who'd spent so much time flying them? Did, did they have that sort of appreciation for it? Or was it, well, you know, just, just another aircraft I flew? Oh, absolutely. Out of all the aircraft he flew, and there were a lot, the Mustang retained a special place. In his heart. When he retired from the air ambulance, they actually had a portrait of a Mustang painted. The air ambulance people got together and chipped it. And even after all those years, the Mustang was still the aircraft that was the closest to his heart. He absolutely loved the Mustang. There's no two ways about it. I don't think it ever lost its uh, enchantment for him. It was his first fighter, but uh, even more so than the early generation jets, he, he loved the Mustang. And Hammond, did he spend a lot of time in the Vampire when he transitioned, or is that just sort of an aircraft that he spent a little bit of time on and then straight into the to the Meteor? No, they. Um, I'm trying to think from memory. I think they did around 30 to 40 hours in the Vampire at Williamtown before they ended up at uh, Iwakuni in Japan. Uh, I'd have to double-check that, but I think it was around 30 to 40 hours they did in the Vampire doing uh, various activities and attacking drogues that were being towed, etc. and... Uh, but still, in 30 to 40 hours, stepping up from a Mustang, uh, it wasn't a whole lot of conversion training and then minimal on the Meteor before you saw active service. Did he ever get the chance to fly the uh, Sabre? No, that was his one regret in aviation is that he uh, left the Air Force before he had a shot at the Sabre. He would have loved to have flown that one. He always said that was his, his regret. That, yes. that and the Sea Fury, there was a... a oh, yeah. There was a, um, an opportunity a couple of times in his career when he could possibly have got in the Sea Fury and he narrowly missed being able to do that. Uh, so that I, if I had to summarise, I'd say his favourite aircraft, the Mustang, his two regrets were the Sabre and the Sea Fury. Well, they're, they're two good regrets to have because they are yes. beautiful aircraft. And I mean, I've heard the, heard the Sabre referred to as like a jet Mustang. It's the, the last of the great gunslingers. Yeah, and the Sea Fury is just a monster. Yeah, when he was fly- towing targets during the 1960s for civil operator flying Mustangs, they had a Sea Fury, and he'd done all the ground school. I've still got the hook of Sea Fury manual here on my bookshelves, and apparently he was very close to doing it, and I forget what happened. They sold off the Sea Fury or something, but he, he just dipped out by a matter of weeks, apparently. So, and uh, obviously a lot of this book focuses on your father's time in Korea. Tell us a story about how he found himself heading over there. It was very soon after he'd done the uh, the hours on the, the media in Japan that he had to take an aircraft over to Korea. And one of the interesting points was that when he first landed there, only within days, he was in a tent with his uh, some of his course mates from Point Cook and they got shot down. And he actually had the commanding officer come in very quietly and solemnly and asked him to move tents because everyone in his tent had been shot down that day. So it was a somewhat of a baptism by fire. And once again, he used to always say that it was learning on the job pretty much when you got to Korea. If you survived the first six weeks, 
he always felt just chance of survival went up exponentially because you, you just learned when to pull out reference or rocket delivery or, or how low to go with guns, etc. And some of those things you, you only really got a feel for when you'd done them a number of times. And, and one of the things that did catch people up there was when you'd done so much of your training on Mustangs, the heavier inertia of the Meteor, particularly if it still had the belly tank on, there were a number of instances where the guys didn't pull out quite in time and, and pancaked in. So there were all these things that you had to get a feel for the aircraft from what I can understand both through conversations with, with Dad and also other medial pilots who served in Korea. Because I think that that was really, would have been a, a real um, interesting part about going to war in Korea is it's very much a transition. They were going from, you know, into the jet era and really having to learn the craft of flying those aircraft, as you mentioned, they're really by the seat of their pants and being thrown into that situation would have been an enormous challenge, I imagine. Absolutely. In so many ways, you're correct there. And, and picturing it as a conversion was fundamentally the, the basic piston fighter instrument panel, and then they found a space to plug in every other gauge that they needed. There was no logic to it. And then there was still no G-suits, so you'd frequently grey out as you pulled up out of a, a, a rocket attack or something. Uh, so G-tolerance was a, a fairly critical element. And to see chaps flying around in jets with leather helmets on still, they only started getting the helmets, I think, uh, possibly late 52. It was certainly after Dad had left Korea in July 52. So you've got chaps flying with no G-suits, leather helmets, and uh, as first generation of jets, it, it was very much a, a learning experience in so many ways. And because it was a jet, they put it against the MiG initially and it, it didn't um, come up as they'd hoped. And so that's how it reverted into the ground attack role. Yeah, the MiG was a very big challenge for all uh, Allied pilots in that war, as I recall uh, from reading a lot of uh, about that war. But uh, as you mentioned, it went into the ground attack role and uh, I guess a much better aircraft for doing that sort of stuff. It was. It was a, a relatively stable platform by all accounts. It did have a, a tendency to snake some pilots relate at times when it was uh, on a gun run. But the, the real vulnerability, ironically, for the, the ground attack was the belly tank, the ventral tank, which... Yeah. As you pulled out, you exposed that to the, the ground fire quite um, prominently. So it was a good aircraft for the delivery, uh, but it was vulnerable by virtue of that belly tank. Yeah, big uh, come shoot me here and watch me go boom. Yeah, and, and even if you'd uh, used that ventral tank fuel by the time of the attack, you still had vapour in there. So there were a number of chaps who were lost uh, due to ventral tanks streaming fuel and streaming fire. They just lost them uh, tragically under those circumstances. So, and how many missions did he end up flying in Korea? Uh, he ended up flying 201, uh, which is quite a significant number. That'd be a significant number even in today's theatre, I would imagine. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and the nature of the uh, sorties did vary. Some were, were patrols, obviously, but there was a, a fair amount of rocket attacks and uh, gun runs, etc. So you were, in the, in the face of, of, of ground fire, not infrequently. So it, it was a, um, a number of sorties. And in fact, when he first arrived back in Australia, there was a lot of conjecture going on. The Defence Minister at the time was Billy McMahon and pilots were being cycled through for two tours and there was a shortage of pilots to go to Korea. And in one newspaper article, he was approached and they said, is 200 missions too many for a single pilot? And very dad-like, he said, oh, the blokes would only grumble if they weren't kept busy. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I don't think he had any sense of philosophy or politics about him in any way, shape or form till the day he died. He just tended to call a spade a spade and he, he was up there to fly jets and that's what he did. So 
the fact that he did 201 missions was a number that was about it. He didn't know when the last one was coming, though. The uh, the boss generally wouldn't tell you, he said. They'd just come up to you after you'd landed and say that's enough. Now you mentioned that uh, you know father, your father being a very matter-of-fact type of person, uh, didn't talk much after the war about uh, you know any of the medals that he got. But there's one medal that uh, is quite unique. Yes, that's a, that's a very interesting story, and, and there's a lot of interest in the book because of that. In that he was the first Australian to, to be awarded the American Purple Heart, and one of the reasons that's the case is technically it, it's only awarded to American citizens, and we were totally unaware that that this award had been made. And it was only in about 1985 when the Australian government released the official history of the Korean War that they had a professor, Dr. Robert O'Neill, released the volume. And in the back of it, it had the list of foreign decorations to Australians that he had the Purple Heart. And I remember it was 1985 and I said to my father, did you get it? And he sort of lowered the newspaper and yelled out to my father, did I get the Purple Heart? Because all the other medals were still in the drawer. <laughs> and she goes, oh, I, I don't think so. And he went, no, nah, I didn't get it. And that was about the end of it from his perspective at that time. Uh, I had a bit more interest in it, as did my mother. We started to follow the trail. And to give you a paraphrase, the day that he, 6th of uh, February 1952, he was looking for a down uh, pilot from 77 Squadron. And I won't go into the full detail because it's, it's there in the book, but in the end he was hit by ground fire and blew his canopy off and he ended up getting metal and perspex in his face. I've still got the goggles he was wearing, which are fairly badly buckled with one lens gone. And he managed to recover and retain control of the aircraft and make it back to Kimpo, where the Americans were, were very impressed at the base hospital of the Australian who flew the aircraft back with the top down. Uh, and once they'd they treated him. They were very impressed by the fact that he signed himself out of the hospital and then they were more impressed by the fact that the next day he went and did another two sorties. So to him that was just what you did. It wasn't anything to write home about. But obviously the Americans were impressed and started these proceedings. Now when I chased up subsequently whether he'd been awarded it, everyone said, oh, he couldn't have been. It's an American. He's not an American. But he was awarded a presidential citation in association with the award. And most Purple Hearts are just issued at unit level uh, by the American commanders. If you qualify, you get one. They don't come with a citation. But this one starts with the words, uh, by order of the president, or on behalf of the president, uh, Sergeant Phillips up of the Royal Australian Air Force. So there's no ambiguity. They knew he was Australian. And when we followed it through, the upshot was that it had been recommended by the Commander-in-Chief of United Nations Forces, the Australian Prime Minister's Office, the Australian Governor-General. But after 12 months of bickering, uh, it got blocked by a, um, the Secretary for Commonwealth Relations in the UK. Uh, they prevented him receiving it. They did not want to set a precedent. It was without precedent at that stage. Uh-huh. And for that reason, he never received word of it. Yet when I've got his personnel file, uh, his commanding officer has listed his decorations and in the listing is the Purple Heart. So his commanding officer, the commander-in-chief, the prime minister and the governor-general was under the impression he'd get it, uh, but it did get blocked. And that is fundamentally the tale of Australia's first Purple Heart. Everyone recommended it, but the ability to actually wear that decoration was blocked uh, in London. 
I think it says a lot about your your father and and his attitude to you know to life. I guess is um you know that it really didn't uh, really wasn't a big thing as far as he was concerned. You know, did I have it? Well, maybe I'm not sure. You know. Yeah, it was only when he was terminally ill right at the end that he got interested in it. Uh, because he, I think he had a sense of there's grandchildren that aren't born yet. I wouldn't mind if they knew what I'd done because I won't be here to tell them. And I think all of us probably hit a point in our lives, particularly I think if uh, death's door's knocking where we reflect and think, gee, what's my legacy? And I think he only, for the first time in his life, probably wondered what his legacy was going to be when he was down to his final weeks. And that's when he really took interest in it. And that's part of the reason why I, I... never quite let the story go. And as many years as it took, I was determined to get the book and that's the story of the Purple Heart out there. So you've often talked about, you know, that your father was such a big influence on your career in so many ways. I guess um, it must have been, as you mentioned there, something you'd wanted to do. Do you think that was what inspired you in general just to get into writing? Because, you know, our listeners are probably well aware this is not the first book that you've written. You've written quite a few. Yeah, I don't think it inspired me to get into writing. I think that was more a byproduct of the answer collapse and sitting there going, I've got to have a second string to my bow. I just can't rely on this industry wholly and solely uh, anymore. But this was the story that I always wanted to write. It, it is, if I was ever going to write a book, I guess from the outset, this is the one I wanted to write. It didn't necessarily get me into writing, but I knew this story had to be told. And on, on a number of levels, yes, I wanted to share the story with people, but it started off fundamentally with me asking the question, who is my father? Because I was seeing these combat reports, I was hearing these stories And he was a chap who I don't ever remember my mother opening a car door or a house door. I don't ever remember him swearing in front of her Uh, on one occasion, and that's in the book, and he was really pushed for that to happen. And an absolute gentleman who still tipped his hats at ladies in the bank. And yet when you read that he was a commander and that he was a fighter pilot, it was almost incongruous with the man I knew. But when you start to read it in context, it makes perfect sense. I think to a degree it was generational. The Americans call those who grew up during the Great Depression and saw service in World War II the the golden generation or they've got very endearing terms for it. And I think in a way living through the Great Depression and the hardship, there was a a severe drought in the 1930s where my father grew up as well and he was forced to leave school at 13 or 14 years of age. And um, that in many ways prepared them for the relatively harsh life that they had of the military service and seeing combat. Nothing would ever prepare you, I don't think, for that first combat experience. But as he said to me once, uh, he was talking about hunching down in the jungle and it was raining. He tried to grab about 30 minutes sleep and he, he put his rifle across his lap and, and draped his ground sheet over it to keep his weapon dry and then nodded off. And he said, someone would come up and nudge you and you you move on. And I said to him, how did you do that? How did you sleep up to your knees in mud, in the rain, etc." and, uh, you know, having a dog biscuit and some bully beef? He looked at me and said, oh, no, 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 that wasn't a problem. He said, I was driving cool when I was nine. He said, the blokes I tipped my hat to, he said, they're the guys who went to Fort Street Boys High and became accountants. They had it tough. It was, it was okay for someone like me. Yeah. He, never, he never perceived that it was... Um, I won't say out of the ordinary, but he never perceived it was particular hardship. Well, I think it's a generation that really had to fight for a lot, whereas, uh, and I guess... Um, all along the way, all along the way, you're dead right. Yeah. And, and um, he was, as I said, driving cattle when he was nine or ten with his father, and he was, um, when he left school, he had to get another job, and that was working at a foundry. He used to climb inside the furnaces and scrape the carbon off the inside of the, the furnace. 
So to him, to get three square meals a day and sleep in a barracks was probably uh, a nice change. And then the fact that he ended up in the jungle, so be it. He, he knew what he was in for. Yeah, yeah. As the saying goes, luxury, sheer luxury. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, if we just go to uh, towards the, the later part of the book there, it talks about his career post-war. And uh, as you mentioned uh, at the top there, uh, Royal Flying Doctor Service, time in the airlines, um, really a lot of interesting flying there as well. Yes, he uh, initially went into flight instruction after he left the Air Force and then um, he joined Qantas and he flew the Super Constellation for a few years. Uh, those tips, those trips, I should say, were fairly extensive. Though there's one in his logbook was was about six weeks. He got back from Europe as far as Singapore, then they turned him around back to London. He ended up coming back by the United States and Hawaii before he finally got home. Um, they were in the days before telephones too, so my mother would get a telegram typically on Thursday saying in Singapore, stop home Sunday, stop by Philip, and Mum would get my sister ready and uh, tidy the house and. Sunday comes, Sunday go, and on Tuesday she'd get another telegram saying something like, in bar rain, stop, we'll advise further. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, mum had encouraged him to leave the military. It's probably the best way to phrase it uh, so that he'd be home more, and that obviously <laughs> didn't work, work out. <laughs> so um, typically the trips were, were you know, three to four weeks, but as I said, there's one in his log that goes for six weeks. So it wasn't necessarily the, the ideal um, career at that time for a, a young bloke trying to start a family in that. And I think he'd been away enough with the military and in the end he um, gave it away to go to airlines in New South Wales. And unfortunately, he did love that job. But after about 12 months or so, they retrenched about 30 pilots and he was one of them. So he, uh, he had his ups and downs through his career as well. I remember a number of times during his general aviation career when I was growing up, the companies went broke under him, et cetera, and that's so I was schooled very early on as towards the uncertainties of, of aviation, particularly general aviation. You can't say you didn't know what was coming up for your career because, you know, that's the same kind of things have happened all throughout for, for most people in the commercial world, haven't they? Absolutely. Uh, and, and mine's been, I've probably had two or three either fall out from under me or, or get very tenuous, uh, but I know chaps have had six, seven, and eight companies yeah. um, go bust under them. So it's it unfortunately is part of the landscape. It's probably going to be a little less because I don't think the career paths through general aviation are quite what they were. Mm. Uh, there's more direct entry by cadetships, etc. But yeah, the, the, I never had a, um, a naive eye in the sky type view of general aviation or a career in aviation. I, I saw the realities of it charter flights where he, he was landed at six o'clock but he was home at 8 30 because he was hosing vomit out the back of it or something or <laughs> had to stop the when he was flying some charter work for so i think it was and he'd have to stop the fridge for the bloke in the next day or that i knew there was a lot more to it than just uh getting in and flying which is good because a lot of people just go in with their stars in the eyes about let's go flying and then they hit the reality and for a lot of them it's it's a brick wall they can't get over but you know, it's it's part of what you got to get through and yeah, you already had that that awakening from your father's stories and, and watching him as he was doing it when you were younger. Absolutely. And there was an element of that that was a, a little scary too, that he was a guy with the 201 combat missions, every rating that you could possibly ask for. And uh, at one stage we lost his job, he, he was driving cars on the back of trucks at forward uh, until he could get another flying job. And whilst I was very young when that particular one happened, I, rem- I remember things in parallel and I remember thinking, gee, you know, if a bloke with that much experience can find himself out of work, it, it, it was a little a little daunting. 
but I wanted to fly so desperately that I, I thought, no, well, I'll roll with the punches too. And, and I had a couple along the way, but it didn't have me too bad. Well, your father was uh, your main instructor, wasn't he? Yeah, the only uh, training he didn't do was my flight instructor rating. I did that on a full-time course at the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales, but he did my uh, private, commercial, multi-engine, IFR, uh, formation, yeah, everything fundamentally other than my instructor rating. What an absolute privilege. Oh, absolutely. This book couldn't have been written unless that happened because the number of stories and and perceptions that I'm able to portray in this book that were actually gleaned sharing a, a sandwich and a thermos under a wing at Taree or something is limitless. And uh, if those moments hadn't have occurred, particularly losing him at 65 years of age, uh, I doubt that I would have had enough material for this book. But as it uh, turned out, the ability that I to spend so much time with him not only gave me so much material, but it piqued my interest. And uh, many of the anecdotes that were related to me that found their way into the book weren't told to me as war stories. They, the, the tangle he had with a MiG fighting career, he didn't tell me that as talking about a dogfight. He was talking about fuel management because in the wake of in the wake of that, he got excited. And when he broke off the engagement, he looked down and he was virtually on vapors. And he, he was talking to me, no matter how excited or under pressure you may be, if you don't have fuel, you don't have anything. Yeah. You cannot get distracted away from your fuel. And I, I remember sitting there as he's briefing me thinking, yeah, having a swept wing big um, tangle with you is, is, is distracting. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but he did but he did get the point across. And that was the funny thing. A, a number of these what we call war stories didn't emerge because he was relating his wartime experience. He was using them to show this is where it caught me out more often mm. than this is where I messed up. This is where I was fallible. And yeah. all of his instructional technique – was based around the fact that I'm an average pilot who applies myself who has made mistakes and that there is no room for arrogance or complacency in the cockpit. From day one, that was his his philosophy in the way he he approached instructing me. And I think that was one of the biggest takeaways I got out of it. That's, yep. uh, that's really interesting. In fact, it, it must be a real military thing too, Owen, because um, uh, we've had a lot of similar uh, conversations with people like uh, Matt Hall who, who have a, a very similar attitude, it seems to me, when it, when it comes to, even though he's flown in a completely different era, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk of fundamentals and, and things that most people would probably take for granted but shouldn't. Yeah, it, it, I, I can't stress enough uh, how the core subjects he instilled and he had so many rules of thumb and little sayings that that stayed with me. He used to talk about, uh, in terms of getting slow on approach or, or the like, he'd say, look, you've got to remember, gravity has killed more pilots than inertia. <laughs> he said, the minute you put Sir Isaac Newton in the pilot seat, you're a dead man. And um, it really got the point across. So you've got to keep that airflow over the wing. You've got to keep flying the aircraft. It doesn't know that you're forced landing and the trees are coming up to meet you. You must keep the aircraft flying he had those little sayings that really used to um, echo and you'd think, gee, you know, that's that's true. And the ability to bring complex concepts down into thumbnail sketches uh, was a real, well, it's a, an, a good instructor skill regardless of whether it was my father or anyone else, but it was a skill that he definitely had. Now, in my career as a parent, Owen, I have often caught myself saying things that my parents said to me that I swore I would never say when <laughs> I was a kid. Tell me, um, did a lot of your father's um, uh, ways and sayings, did they find their way into your instructing method when uh, when it was your turn to do that job? I don't know if I actually had an original thought in that whole time. <laughs> 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 yeah. uh, I took a lot 
of it in with me. Obviously, one of the, the skill sets in instructing is to be able to adapt to the varying students and speak the language that they speak to get the point across in their terms. So that was um, obviously something that I had to modify on each occasion. But no, I definitely took some of the language with me. But more than that, it was that technique of breaking it down into point form and I had a really strong emphasis on the debrief, which was one of his points. He was very big on the debrief. While the mind was fresh, let's go over what actually happened. And sometimes in the commercial operations, you can see that, oh, I'm off with my next student. I've got to go see you next Tuesday. Um, I made my best efforts not to ever do that, mm. uh, even to the extent that if I did have back-to-back sessions, I would not infrequently try to coordinate a debrief close as I could to that session with the student because uh, one thing he did in part was the importance of a debrief. And I still do it now. As I drive home from the airport, I will have two or three or four things um, that I've written on my little notepad on the side that I've, I've missed or I haven't been happy with during the day. And I've, I've never driven home with a clean slate. You always have to remain teachable, don't you? That's a a saying that applies to not only aviation, but really everything in life. Absolutely. In aviation, the minute you think you know it all, you're getting very dangerous. (laughs) And and, and that was one of his too. He did impart that that method in me, but I think the debrief was one thing I definitely took away. And also try to break things down into components. Don't over talk in the cockpit. And yeah, there was a lot that I took away from him. And and I, I was my instructor flight test when I first did it, and it was back in the days when the department did it, it went very well and the, the departmental examiner has some very kind words to say uh, about my flight test and I still owe that to a great instructor course but, but the instruction I'd received because ultimately we are the, the byproduct of all those people we fly with. We, we take away the good points and we, and we watch for the weaknesses and the bad points too. But um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I inherited a heck of a lot from him and, and how he conducted himself too. Well, and as we were sort of you're running a bit short on time now, but I, before we finish up here, I want to talk about Chapter 42 and your father's last flight and a really, really touching uh, story that you wrote there towards the end of the book. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, he, he'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer and um, he knew that his license was, his medical aspect of his license was going to come under review probably within the next few days. And uh, I took him out in a, a, a light aircraft at Bankstown Airport and we shot some circuits. And his whole career, he always said, you've never flown the aircraft unless you've flown it solo. And he always used to put solo in a big dash in the other pilot column in his logbook, his whole career. He, he loved his single pilot time. And he made the suggestion or the comment, I guess is probably a better way to phrase it. He said, oh, gee, I wouldn't mind doing one on my own. And I knew what that meant. And, um, and I knew that the opportunity to allow him to do that was probably in its last few days. It was probably going to be assessed that um, he'd lose his medical. And I looked at him and I said, would you like to do one on your own? Oh, I only feel happy with it. <laughs> and um, I hopped out and it was the table's turn that I sort of said, okay, one circuit, full stop, bring it back, don't forget to pick me up, close the door, check the hatch was shut and gave him the thumbs up. And uh, he went off and it was one of those days when the air was perfectly still and the sun was getting low on the horizon and, I can still see the silhouette of that aircraft. That aircraft is still at Bankstown, actually. And um, I watched him fly around the circuit, and it, it, it transcends the ability to put it into words. I got as close as I could with the book. But to watch him come in for that last time 
and just ease it onto the runway as I'd always see you do. Um, it, it was moving. It was moving. And then when I hopped in the aircraft, he didn't make eye contact with me. He said, oh, thanks for that. But I knew it meant a hell of a lot to him yep. to have done one last flight solo, dashed through the other pilot column, and then when he got home, he put a double line under it in his logbook and it was to say, okay, that's it, I've done it now. Yeah. But um, I, I am so happy that I let him do that one circuit on his own. Uh, and I had total faith in the ability to do it. The six or so he'd done before were just sweet ass. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it, it was a moment I'll um, – I think I'll hold on to when I'm old and grey and sitting in a, a home somewhere, but I, I'm glad that I did it. But it was something to behold to just watch how smoothly just took it around the sky and was, there wasn't a breath of wind and it, yeah. it was it was moving. One of those magic moments. It was, and, and you have half a dozen in your career and that was one of them. Yeah. And I, and I wasn't even flying the aeroplane. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Owen, in a... In a- a, a sea of uh, superb writing that you've written. This is far and away the book I've enjoyed reading of yours the most, and that's saying something because I've enjoyed every every uh, bit of writing you've ever done, mate, and that, that's the absolute truth. So I, I highly recommend this book without precedent. Um, I have the electronic copy, which you can download from Amazon.com, but, uh, Owen, you can also get it in all good bookstores, as the saying goes. Yeah, it's it's in paperback and uh, hardcover. It's on Book Depository Online. Um, I'm actually heading down to the War Memorial uh, in the next few days. It's... Um, going to be stocking it and it's starting to get stocked in mainline bookstores. It seems to be gathering its own momentum, but even if a bookstore doesn't stock it, uh, I know family members over the other side of the world have gone in and it can be ordered into any bookstore. So it's gathering its momentum, but as I said at the start, I think the fact that bad stories is reaching literally across the globe and I'm getting such amazing feedback that words about him are having an impact when he was someone who hated public speaking. In fact, he had to be dead, I think, for me to publish this. He, he, he wouldn't let me do it if he was alive. He'd, he'd be terribly embarrassed, terribly embarrassed. Well, I think, mate, even if he was in, uh, embarrassed uh, outwardly, I'm sure, like all fathers, he would have been uh, very proud uh, inwardly. He, he wasn't a big, big writer, so he'd be astounded that his son can put more than three words together, I think. Well, you've, but, you've uh, certainly managed that, mate, because, uh, I mean, when we first met you, you did Down to Earth. Uh, that was the story of uh, one of the, the British uh, Battle of Britain pilots. Uh, you've done 50 tales of flight, 50 more tales of flight. You've done your solo flight about flying around Australia solo to raise money for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. You've got two volumes of The Practical Pilot, and now you've got Without Precedent. So I think you've got this writing gig pretty well nailed, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, you never get it nailed, but it, it's, it's good to keep working at it. And I, um, I've just met some amazing people by doing it. You know, it's, it's my absolute pleasure to do it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, so, absolutely. And that to me is very humbling, I can tell you. Uh, so demand would dictate practical pilot three. There is a, a groundswell in the wake without precedent for people who have a rough idea of the story for me to write my my mother's story. And I think I may well do it, but I think I will do practical pilot three next. Mum's story in a nutshell was she was a World War Two radar operator who lost her first two great loves, both killed in action, uh, and then met my father um, on his way to Korea and she calculated once that they'd had a, less than 100 hours in each other's company before he proposed. Oh, wow. um, but her story is, is definitely wartime and, and the Great Depression, I should say, but there's more of a romantic angle. There's some incredible twists that you would not believe where 
her life and dad's life overlapped before they ever met. In fact, the, the her fiance, his kids both at Bomber is in the War Memorial, and so is my father's meteor. Oh wow! So things like that. There's coincidences the whole way through, and I think it'd make a, a tale that probably would have a, a, a bit more um, appeal to the ladies too, because there's a deal of romance unlike my father's life. well folks so you can find out everything you need to know and more about Owens Up at his website owensup.com and uh, Owen it's it's great to have you back on the show again mate and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime soon absolutely guys it's it's always an absolute pleasure uh, if I'm not listening to you guys to chat with you (laughs) fantastic mate we'll catch up with you at the next air show good on you guys cheers looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills and one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot and with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Navigate the long white cloud with Oz Runways. Oz Runways now has full support for New Zealand with VFR and IFR maps and all AIP volumes. Our intuitive interface makes Oz Runways the easiest to use electronic flight bag on the market. And unlike older products, everything you need is included in a simple annual subscription. So you're always up to date. Find out why Oz Runways has been the number one iPad electronic flight bag in Australia for over three years. Find Oz Runways on the iTunes store for a free download and a free one month trial. Upgrade your iPad to the best EFB. Try Oz Runways today. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Hi, this is Leo Laporte of This Week in Tech and the Twit Network. You know, we don't do any aviation podcasts, thank goodness. I wouldn't want to compete with Steve in Australia's premier aviation podcast, Plane Crazy Down Under. Phil Kavanagh, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Thank you. You're the man behind Kavanagh Balloons. That's right. We started the company in 1979. Okay. And that was after about oh, 10 years of fooling around making our own balloons and flying them, of course. How, what got you into ballooning at the start and back in the late 60s, early 70s? Well, I owned a sports car that had a tow ball and I met up with a group of university students who were in the only balloon club in Australia called the Aerostat Society. This was in 1968, and um, because I had a tow ball, I was a valuable asset to the club, so I was asked to come away to a country show and tow a trailer, yep. and uh, it was funny. I was just more attracted to the people than I was to the ballooning, because they were quite a, a weird group of people, very eccentric. That has to be. Yeah, well, they were at the time. It was the only balloon in Australia at the time. Yeah, they were, and that was a hot air balloon, not gas. Yeah, yeah, hot air balloon. Yeah. yeah, there wasn't much flying going on at all. It was anywhere in the world at that time, but hot air balloons it was you know sort of a resurgence was happening wasn't it yeah it had just about started in england in 1969 
1968 and it actually started in Australia in 1964, same group of university students. Wow. And, well, well, actually a different group of people but the same club. We started in 1964, yeah. So you've stumbled into ballooning in the classic way, you know, like, here, hold this rope, or in your case, yeah. here, tow this trailer. Yeah, well, here, tow this trailer was the first thing, but I said to my wife, Wendy, you've got to come and have a look, and not at the ballooning, but at the people, you know, just <laughs> just because they were so funny to be around and uh, quite different, quite yeah. different people, because we'd been into sailing and stuff like that, and, you know, the people are more ordinary in sailing. Which is saying something, because there's some interesting people in sailing. There is, sure. there is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so you started getting involved. Did you get um, learn to fly the balloon back then? No, the um, we actually made our own balloon and learned to fly. We learned with a partly with a club balloon by doing tethered flying, which we'd do on, on a loose rope. So we were effectively free flying, you know, fifty feet off the ground, and just in very very big paddocks on very calm days. And we'd fly from one end of the paddock to the other, then we'd tow the balloon back. Someone else would have a go, but it was always tied to the car because legally we weren't allowed to fly in the areas that we were doing that. We, were, we tended to do it down at Camden on, on my cousin's farm okay. next to Warren Park, so, so quite quite close to the aerodrome. So that's pretty much the area that's now become Camden Airport? Yeah. Uh, well, no, it's a bit north of Camden Airport. Yeah, okay. yeah about, about five or six k's north. But yeah, we could tether there because we were just outside the two miles from the aerodrome, but we weren't allowed to fly. fly so. Okay. so that's where we did most of our learning to fly. Then we built our own balloon. What did you make that first balloon out of? It was polyester film. So this is the famous Wild. transparent? Yeah. So this yeah. is the balloon you could yeah. see through? Yeah, it was called Little Bear after the tape that stuck it together. <laughs> so you taped it, it wasn't sewn? Yeah, no, it wasn't sewn. No, it, had, it had a sewn section in the top, the deflation system was sewn, but most of the balloon was taped together. <laughs> How was that to fly, an invisible balloon? Well, it was interesting, and, and we didn't realise um, why we were nervous, but um, a mylar balloon crackles. If you move in the basket, it goes like cellophane rattling, you know, and uh, and it, it's being able to see through it was another thing. So when we actually built a fabric balloon about four years later, you couldn't see through it. It didn't make any noise when you walked in the basket. You know, if you moved in the basket, there was no noise. And suddenly I felt a lot happier about being in a balloon because it was, it was all a very big adventure in the in the film balloon because we used to fly it in a parachute harness half the time as well. And we had the fuel tank about six feet above our heads. And then, so when you landed, you'd be you'd come in running and, uh, and so if it was fast. Uh, but the deflation system was very fast. It was instant. So once you, you pop a pin, the whole time would open up so we didn't even know what a drag landing was until we got a balloon with a parachute bend okay. so, um, so you, you, would, you would just come in and bang dump onto the ground yeah you, you'd land pop the top the balloon would fall down and that was the end of that and if it was a windy day you might drag 10 feet so, similar to what smart vents are today you yeah. know that, that sort of uh, control over yeah. the landing how did you make the basket for that first balloon well sometimes we had no basket but the other it wasn't actually a basket on the first balloon it was a steel frame with a plywood floor Wow. And, uh, and a canvas sides. Yep. So um, very first time I free flew it, I got a sprained ankle because my foot slipped off the floor and went between the canvas and the floor and got run over by the baskets. So, Ow. Yeah, it, it didn't uh, It didn't actually hurt very much at the time, but about two hours later I couldn't walk. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. and so despite all that, you still went on and uh, finished learning to fly the yeah, 
yeah. built another one. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we have, we effectively but, taught ourselves to fly and, yeah. and came to know what whether you should fly in and what whether you shouldn't fly in by virtue of the amount of trouble we got into at various <laughs> times a day. <laughs> so this was back in the exploring stage. It was very much exploring, yeah. And nobody knew. Nobody yeah. knew what to do. You know, we, I remember one day the, the whole group of us were standing around in a field and there was a solitary tree in the middle of the field and one of the group was going up to it past us towards the tree to circle around the tree and then went off and one of the comments was gee won't it be good when we we learn to be able to anticipate what these currents are doing and be able to ride them to our advantage <laughs> and what we were actually witnessing was the first thermal of the day yeah. <laughs> which is like taking the, taking the steering wheel off a car yeah and just putting the foot on the accelerator and seeing what happens yeah that's right you're yeah. closing your eyes that's amazing <laughs> okay so, so from the early days of the 70s you made a couple of balloons um, how many yeah. balloons did you make in total before you started the company we made uh, well there was Little Bear Ulinga was the second one then we made uh, a balloon called Destiny which had the signs of the zodiac around it and then pretty much as soon as we built that someone asked us to build a balloon so we made one for the South Australian Lands Commission which we finished delivered and four days after we delivered it before they got to shoot the commercial for the Lands Commission the government changed and they cancelled the whole Lands Commission so there was no Lands Commission oh wow that. so that it left this balloon in limbo and I think it, it got sold off and um, somebody, somebody got a nice cheap balloon what kind of basket was onto that one well that was just an envelope so they were going to put on an existing bottom end down there somewhere and by then and somebody was making cane wicker baskets or bring them in from the UK yeah. no, well, well yeah there was some imported balloons that came in with wicker baskets and we made our first wicker basket on our first fabric balloon which was in 1974 and uh, um, and then when when I built uh, Destiny I made the basket myself in the backyard labour of love well it was difficult yeah. <laughs> the first first basket ever made so it wasn't terrific but it was good it was okay did the job yeah it did the job <laughs> yeah, well, it lasted like 400 hours or something before we and, I, and by that time I decided that wasn't the way to have a basket anyway so we ended up throwing it down the tip so, so what, what kind of um, burners were you using how are you putting the heat into the balloon well we, we'd always made our own burners and, and it was very interesting in burner development the first burners we made were multi-jet burners and they were f- fairly quiet and quiet because the balloon was small the burner power was extraordinarily large so compared to say a 56 or a 60,000 cubic foot balloon at the time we would use half the burn time in, in the film balloon because the burners were big in a small balloon but they were also very quiet and then we made another quiet burner for Ulinga which was um, an oblong shaped burner and it had a very soft soft-sounding waffly flame and no one believed it was powerful and so we had to when we decided that we'd sell balloons we had to actually make a very loud barky burner to make people believe that it was powerful and now we've come the full and circle these now days now we've come the full circle back to a quiet burner again <laughs> <laughs> which is good yeah okay so you made a few balloons you realised that there was a bit of an industry here and yeah. um, so you set up Kavanaugh balloons yeah. whereabouts at well, first were you? well we were at home in Wurunga um, in the in the garage and we we built uh, first of all the first few balloons we made inside the house and we had a giant four bedroom house that we were renovating an old federation house and so there was plenty of room and there was only us with two kids so we sort of moved the balloon factory from bedroom to bedroom as they got uh, um, 
fixed up. You know, as each room got, got um, renovated, and we'd moved to another one that wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, and then we built a double garage beside the house, and, and we used that until about 1986. So this was starting about 1979, and then sort of 1979, 80, 81, 82, I was working as a, a freelance um, television cameraman, which sort of supported the balloon building business quite, quite admirably. And, um, uh, and then in 1986, there was uh, commercial ballooning had started in the early 80s in Australia, so they, that forced licensing, which we hadn't had to do before, and it also forced certification of balloons. So we'd made 45 balloons by the time certification came in, so CASA or the CIA, whatever it was called at the time, sort of said, well, we can put all these people in jail or we can legalise them, and, and then unfortunately that included us. <laughs> so instead of having to go through a certification project before we actually sold a product, we already had developed a product in the market and all we had to do was do certification drawings and have them approved and, and flight test all the balloons for performance and we had a burner that had hundreds and all probably thousands of hours of time in, um, in proof of service so we didn't have to do burner tests either so it was all very handy yeah and so that was 86? 86, yeah. And was that, that when you came here? To well, that, that sort of drifted through until almost 1990 by the time certification was finished. Okay. And then in uh, we had a factory from about 1987 onwards at Thornley, and then we bought this block of land in 1989 and then built on it in 1992, moved in 1993. Okay. So we've been here ever since. Yep. Yeah. Because, yeah, back in 86 was when Chris Dewhurst was just starting up yeah. uh, the Melbourne flights. and Yeah. Yeah. Well, he'd, he'd started up in... In Queensland uh, area, wasn't it? No, in, in uh, Canoundra. Oh, was, okay. Was for, he had a company called Adventure Travel and they did trekking trips yep. and rafting things. And he uh, he was a mountaineer and he, he was um, caught in an avalanche with a couple of friends that were killed at the time and uh, smashed his knees up so he couldn't be a climber anymore and it was hard for him to lead treks as well because it was difficult to walk really long distances at, at a fast pace so he thought oh, I'll do something more sedentary that's still sort of adventurous so that's why he started ballooning. Okay because he, he, we had him on a little while ago um, he was flying for a picture of this yeah. um, a couple of Christmases back so we mm. I did the interview with him and um, yeah. Yeah, he said he'd started things off and he got into ballooning he didn't see yeah, he didn't he didn't say why. a little bit there <laughs> but um, yeah, so well, he's always very adventurous person. Oh, very much Chris, so. Yeah. Well, first man to fly over Everest and mm. hot air balloon things like that. And yeah. he was—he I know he did a lot of rock climbing in the Grampians and yeah. places like that. And, and he said he had started the balloon flights, and then he was looking at Melbourne and yeah. and a combination of having family and friends in the right places made it start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you were right there building balloons and yeah. getting them happening. Well, we got to know Chris in the early '80s. He bought a balloon from England and, and started his passenger carrying business. And then when he bought a, another one, he bought it from us. And so that was sort of 80, 82, 83, I guess. And then he, he also had this idea to fly over Mount Everest. So in 84, we built four balloons, two 105s and two 200s, which were the biggest in the country at the time, the 200s. And we 
took them to Everest in 1985, or to Nepal in 1985, but we weren't ever allowed to get within 20 miles of the border. So it was they were mountain flights, but they weren't ever going to be crossing the border. Yeah. Although it was our intention to go as close as we could. <laughs> well, I just happened to get really close. Just happened to get really close, yeah. yeah. So you've seen a lot of changes, like from the early days of flap inflation and uh, charcoal Charlie, the poor person who stands stuff. inside with a broom to hold it open as the first burns go yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. You've seen that. And then when did fans start to get used? Oh, we always use fans. Americans always use fans. It was only the British the who, flap who felt that, that doing something that Americans do is not really what you should do. So they would, you know, char the, the eyebrows off all their friends rather than, <laughs> rather than have a fan, you know. Yeah, that, and it also may have been the size of the vehicles that they were carrying their balloons around in didn't allow room for a fan, you know, and, the, and they maybe they didn't like trailers or it, it was probably something as simple as that. Yeah, because they weren't really using trailers. They'd put them in the back of a pickup or things yeah, like that. Yeah, sort of a, a, a bongo van or something. Yeah. They call them. Yeah, yeah. Little, <laughs> little high ace van or things yeah. like that. The old but also there is a lot of, a lot of you know, if the Americans did it, why on earth would we do it? You know, yeah. we'll think of another way, you know, even, I, though, even though there isn't one. <laughs> well, I, I just found it fascinating, the thought that you would flap and flate and then you would have someone inside with a, with a stick holding yeah. it up as the yeah. flame is going past them. Yeah. No wonder they call them Charcoal Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> well, we did do, we always used a fan with our first balloon. On the second one, we thought, oh, we'll try it without a fan. And, and we had a couple of aluminium poles with big big uh, pads stuck to the end. And, and we'd have two people standing in the mouth holding it up. But we'd flap a bubble of air in and then puff it. But occasionally you burn the balloon and it's yeah. just not worth it. No. Yeah. And so you've got to be good at it to make it work properly. <laughs> yes. Not everyone's good at it. No, it's like hand propping an aircraft. It's the same yeah, kind of thing. That's right. It takes yeah. technique. You've got friends with split personalities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've, you've seen all this come about. You've seen the changes in materials. I mean, mm. um, just earlier during the course, uh, this maintenance course we've been doing, you've you've spoken about different materials. How, how do you go about researching materials? It really comes down to finding a manufacturer who will make what you want them to make and attempt to experiment their way into making it work the way you want it, you know, so that's what we've always done with fabrics. But the development of, of ballooning has been a really interesting thing to watch because when we started, the burners were traditionally small and if you could get, and there was nothing, no such thing as a scoop skirt. So if you could get the balloon off the ground, it was decent enough weather to land it in as well. And then along came scoop skirts and you could suddenly get the balloon off in positively dangerous weather to land in. Yep. But then the uh, and the burners got bigger. So you could a scoop skirt and a bigger burner and you could get the balloon off in, in weather that was absolutely terrifyingly dangerous. And then along came smart vents, fast deflation systems, and suddenly you could land in any sort of weather you like. And that's where we're at now. Yeah. So, so the, the end result has been that places like Melbourne, instead of flying a 160, you're now flying a 240 yeah. the same sitting and you're landing in the same little parks. Because you can rip that top out and you can pop it into a small space very yeah. quickly. Yeah. And, yeah. and the realisation has come along that, that the mass of, of the basket and, and passengers, you know, say a 400, presents very much a smaller sail area ratio to the mass than, than say, a 56 with two people in it. Yeah. You've got um, a lot more sail area 
area in a 56 compared to the mass that you're dragging. So a big balloon will stop quicker just from, from its own inertia, from, from it being such a heavy thing to begin with. So Yeah, because yeah, the, the volume inside hasn't increased the, the surface area to the wind when you've ripped the top out and it, mm. it goes from being a balloon into a big spinnaker. Yeah, a big spinnaker and a tea bag that drags you along until you That's finish. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, But those things, those drag landings are pretty much a thing, a big long drag landings are a thing of the past now. Yeah, one of our pilots clocked the record. He reckoned that it was 120 metre, but that was in a, a special shape, the Liberty House. With a small basket, yeah. one passenger, one pilot, so that and a small, huge and a small rib panel. Yeah, huge yeah. surface area, yeah. small panel to empty it out. That's and right. Not a lot of weight. No, <laughs> that's right. And they just don't stop. No. Yeah. yeah. So where do you see it all going? Where, where, I mean, right well, now. Well, we've gone um, new burner now, which you, everyone's probably heard about the Crossfire burner, and and the aim with that was to make a bigger burner for a start because most of our balloons are now bigger. So we're we're aiming to to reflight test a few models of balloons. So where you've got say a 240 has to have a triple burner on it now. Up to a 300, we should be able to do it with a double burner because the burner is that much bigger. And uh, the other thing that's good about it is the um, fact that it runs at very low pressure, incredibly well, like better than anything it ever has. So um, less need to spike your tanks and things. Well, no need to spike your tanks. Yeah, that's great. But we still. The burn is still young in the field, and it's going to be good to see a few people go out with 400s in the middle of winter with um, 50 psi tanks and just see can you actually fly 400 nicely at 50 psi with two or three burners? Well, haven't you done a, haven't you done a quad burner set up for that? We, we have, yeah. Think, We've got a quad. I think on, I saw a photo of one of the guys checking out his quad. Quads on 400s, yeah. But I mean, the, in the end, what we're hoping is quads will go on 450s and that you'll have a triple on a 400 and a 350. Nice. And doubles on a 300. So. <laughs> <laughs> Single, and a, singles up to 120. Yeah, I was going to a half-size one on a little 77 that I'm yeah, flying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter how big the burner is, you just use it less. Yeah. yeah. When you see some some of the GoPro videos that, that we've got from the World Championships, mm-hmm. you have these tiny little burners, like two tiny little squirts for less than half a second, and then he's on the vent line, venting air so that yep. the balloon will stay down, you know, and then he'll look at it again and give another couple of little squirts, and then he'll be on the vent again straight away. I was so watching that and going, wow, that's burn vent, burn vent. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty impressive. Impressive. Yeah. <laughs> the amount that he's not burning is pretty impressive. Yeah, but that's also a small balloon that's lightly loaded. Yeah, that was a sixty-five, 65 race, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, with a teardrop shape. Yeah, very, very aerodynamic. Yeah, so that's where we're at anyway. The the um, the deflation systems are, and the burner are things we're quite proud of. So very, very, very happy about them. Indeed. And the um, the, the less um, phone calls we get about maintenance with these things. The happier we are. <laughs> it means that they're bedding in very nicely. Yeah, and the phone never rings very much. They certainly don't ring about the deflation system. Since 1998, when we started light vents, yeah. we haven't had a single vent come back for an adjustment. That's great. So it's fantastic. Yeah. And that's it's all the materials you're using, the design. It's a perfect marketing yeah. plan. Yeah, <laughs> to have a, a good design that no one ever has to get repaired. Yeah. yeah. Unless you focus on building new things and researching new stuff. That's right. About yeah. how many balloons are you making a year? Um, 
Well, now, now it's terrible. Yeah. We need more interest, more people. We need more excitement. <laughs> Come and buy more balloons. <laughs> well, we're trying to, we are trying we, to grow the market. I, so. I, I'm, I don't actually look at it very much, but I think we'd be down to probably about 15 balloons a year at the moment. Yeah. Of various but sizes. Normally, normally about 20 to 25. The bigger they are, the less we have to make, of course, to do the same amount of work. But, um, no, we need um, a good economy. Yeah, it has yeah. been hard. Yeah, we need to not have that... Um, that depression that we haven't been having for the last four years. Yeah, so maybe a recession. No, it's a depression. It's, yeah. it's full on. Yeah, well, it's like the mining boom. You know, it's yeah. a, it's a mining boom where no one's selling any um, raw materials, <laughs> and they're getting less prices for them. Yeah, but it's still booming. Yeah. Well, as we're seeing at the moment, you know, the Olympic Dam is off and Fortescue are, yeah. are closing down things and mm. prices are tumbling. It's That's right. It's going to get interesting. But the, um, one of the things with Kavanaugh, you, you mentioned you've got the two two kids, one of whom mm. is Sean. Yep. Who's the other? Paul, Paul's the other one. He also works here, oh, okay. but, but he also has plans to not work here as well. So <laughs> at the moment, the economy has the businesses too small yep. to have another family member involved, and, uh, and he has a plan to, to build an eco-friendly house in the bush, nice. and that's what he's going to do. Yeah. So uh, is everyone flying balloons, both, both of you? Oh, sons? yeah. Yeah, they fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I know Sean's done the competition thing. Yeah. And he's, so he's designing and running the company. Mm. Yeah, he's running more of it than I am at the moment. It's which is a good way to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. look after the beehives and the vegetable garden. <laughs> Polish the boat. Come down and put your stamp of approval on it. That's right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Well, not much. Uh, buy some more balloons. Yeah. That'd be really good. Everyone <laughs> needs to buy more. Everyone needs a new balloon. Everyone needs a balloon. <laughs> no home should be without one. <laughs> Pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Phil. Sean Kavanagh, welcome to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, not bad, mate, not bad. Been an interesting few days doing the ballooning course. Yeah, it's pretty full on. Uh, a lot of information to cover in a short time. Yeah, how to maintain it, but a balloon, it's not all sewing. No, no, there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of it's paperwork. But <laughs> The majority of it's paperwork. <laughs> it seems like anything in aviation these days. Indeed, yeah. Now, Sean, we uh, chatted with your dad, Phil, about where Kavanaugh ballooning came from Mm -hmm. and um, how he got into ballooning, how it's progressed and things like that. So obviously you've grown up surrounded by ballooning, so I guess it's no surprise that you've wound up becoming a pilot yourself. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, flying them was something that I always wanted to do, um, but it's it's been a sort of bit of a twisted road to get here, done a few other things as well along the way. I understand you worked at Qantas in maintenance. Yeah, I was there for uh, nearly 10 years, did my uh, apprenticeship as an aircraft maintenance engineer with Qantas, uh, starting in uh, 1990, and uh, yeah, going through for quite a bit after that. Down at the mascot base? Yeah, down at the jet base. So uh, ended up in uh, in line maintenance. So, you know, doing all the part A checks and uh, yeah, line servicing and stuff. You would have been working there at the time. I got a tour. Um, one of the one of the check captains took me around. He, um, I was doing stuff with an insurance company, okay. um, insurance software that Qantas was using. Yep. And uh, the lady in charge knew I was an airplane nut, so she just told me, go down and fix the modem. And the guy knew I was coming and we'd locked off the whole day and spent the whole day walking, climbing all through the aircraft. It was fantastic. Yeah, so. yeah, there was always people on tour around there. Yeah, 
very impressive base and well worth touring. Absolutely, yeah. Lots going on. Well, yeah. At least there was back then. True. Back in the heyday. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of aircraft were you working on then? Uh, 747-767s. Okay. So, yeah. And were you already flying balloons at this stage? Yeah, I got my licence. Um, actually... Not initially. I would I would have got my license in '94, so uh, so I was already you know out of my time. I suppose didn't have a lot of spare cash during the uh, the apprentice days for flying balloons. Um, and also at that stage, you know, it's one thing to ask your dad to borrow a car. It's the second thing to ask to borrow the balloon and the car. <laughs> and the trailer. And, and the trailer. And, 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 yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was busy playing with sailboards and motorbikes at that stage. Okay. And so uh, straight after Qantas, you came in and worked for the family company? No. Uh, finished up with Qantas. Um, then was actually running my own business at the time, doing uh, video post-production and 3D animation and uh, doing you know, sort of work for TV commercials and, and bits and pieces like that, lots of uh, corporate presentation work and stuff like that. Um, at the time, it seemed like a good idea to turn that into a full-time job, and I very quickly realised I was going to become a, an overweight Coke and pizza-eating uh, <laughs> creature of the night, yep. <laughs> living behind a computer in that lifestyle. Um, got offered a job flying balloons, um, actually through Global Ballooning down in Victoria, and uh, didn't have my commercial licence at the time, so that became part of the deal. And uh, so got my commercial licence, got given a balloon and a car and a credit card, and went on tour. And, cool. Uh, started my commercial ballooning tour. Okay, so you were doing a lot of air work. Yeah, this was aerial work with uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. So we toured around the countryside, you know, putting balloons up at schools, giving sort of science lessons on, on how the physics of balloons and, and why science is cool. Yeah. Um, you can get it all on the new Britannica CD. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was a lot of fun. It, it, it sort of gave me a really good, um, you know, way to, I suppose, play and expand my skills as a pilot. Because uh, at that stage, I'd already, by the time that came around, I'd been competing and, and doing national championships and world championships and things for a few years by then. So, so you got right into so my early. skill level was already up. Um, but that just introduced me to the commercial side of the sport. Okay. Now, you, that was aerial work. How did you move into the charter? Did they start giving you some small balloons and a couple of passengers? Uh, well, basically, no. At the, at the same time, I got offered a job by Balloon Sunrise down in Melbourne. And uh, so once I'd finished the tour with KIF, uh, with Global Ballooning, there wasn't any uh, sort of ongoing work from that. That was just a one-off tour. And... Um, started my charter work at the bottom on a class one balloon down in Melbourne yeah. and uh, worked my way up to at the time two tens were the biggest biggest yeah. balloons there group three balloons and uh, yeah so I did that for a number of years and flying uh, the Yarra Valley or no no over Melbourne oh wow yeah that's so, impressive mm. well it was sort of it was one of those things coming from the competition side in, in my flying I was used to target flying I suppose I had a reputation for hitting my targets and, and stuff like that. I don't think I'd won a nationals at that point, but I was, you know, always second or third. And um, so, yeah, obviously a, a bit of a gamble to put a junior pilot into a position like that. But I had a track record of getting it right. So. 
plus back then it was a little easier in Melbourne I, when I interviewed Chris a while back um, he was saying the biggest change he had seen between his starting of over Melbourne in 86 and where he was coming and flying with us the other day was just the lack of green absolutely how much it's gone yeah it's, it's really interesting I mean Chris has probably talked about it but uh, the public space is still there but now it's concreted with seating and light posts and things like that so what were once just footy fields and soccer fields are turning into hockey pitches and tennis courts and, and yeah. stuff like that so still not, not so balloon friendly no, <laughs> yeah. no it's still amazing you still see lots of green when you fly over Melbourne but it's it's not what it was 20 years ago absolutely yeah so you've spoken a couple of times about competition when did you get into competition flying uh, well, I suppose growing up in the sport, Dad had always been flying competition. Um, I'd been crewing for him and, and all the rest of it. I suppose having a, a pretty strong competitive streak built into me, I uh, didn't think he was doing it right and, you know, <laughs> decided he put me in my place by saying, well, you go and do better. And, um, and it went from there. So when I got my licence in, in 94, it was actually 93 I got my licence, I should say. Uh, it was with the intent of competing at the Nationals in 94 and um, went through. I've, I can't remember if I finished second or third in that Nationals, but it qualified me for the World Championships in 95 and, and it was on from there. And that, how many hours did you need to have to get into the, the Nationals? Uh, it was a minimum of 50 and I managed, I think, in the 12 months since I'd got my licence, I'd got up to about 48 or 49 hours. Wow. And I managed to, to get an exemption to, <laughs> to get through a couple of hours early into yeah. the competition. Yeah. That's well done to get that many hours in that short a time. It was a lot of work. Yeah. yeah I was pretty broke by the end of it. I was only, I'd only just become a tradesman at that point and uh, or might have even still been in my last year and yeah. uh, scrounging for every bit of overtime I could get and, uh, and nicking off every single weekend to go flying. Yeah. Dedication. But we got a goal. Well, that was it. Yeah, that was the goal, was to get to the Nationals. And uh, Where was that in 2000? Oh, sorry, 90, 94. Uh, 94, that was in Mildura. Okay. Yeah. And then the Worlds that year? Uh, the next Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, right, where yeah. we've just been. Where we've just been. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So how many Nationals and Worlds have you done? Oh, I wish you'd asked me to research that before you interviewed me. <laughs> Pretty well, I've done every Nationals since 94, except for the last one. So uh, that's every two years since 94. Do the math. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, a lot. Um, and World Championships, I think I've done five or six. Yeah. So you would, and you would have been over to Saga in Japan and... Yeah, lots of, and lots of flying in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, Saga and Matagi, uh did most, did both of those events nearly every year since about 96. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so lots of trips to Japan and, and all that. So what was the lure to bring you into the family company? Uh, I think Dad thought I was having too much fun in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> uh, again, you know, in the, in the, I suppose, the, the heydays of commercial ballooning, um, when it was just the one business over Melbourne, yeah. you know, depending on weather and everything else, we'd fly two, three, four times a week if the weather was good. We finished work by 10 o'clock in the morning and I'd be going sailing and you know, yeah. spent a lot of time racing yachts down in Melbourne and, and doing all that 
that sort of stuff. Yep. And uh, and eventually Dad sort of rang and said, you're having a lot of fun down there. I think it's time you came back and got a real job. <laughs> um, there's a business waiting for someone to get excited about it. So... Um, so late in 2000, with all the competition stuff, I'd done the design, decided that I wanted to do a, a design project um, in terms of certifying a, and designing a sports balloon mm-hmm. you know, specific for competition. Um, and, and, you know, Phil sort of said, well, you know, if you want to do that, then you do it. Um, so in 2000 or 2001, that was my first design project. So I was still flying in Melbourne. It was 2000. I was still flying in Melbourne, but I... I did all the the CAD stuff from from home down in Melbourne, and then uh, came up here, did the construction, and, and sort of learnt how to, to put an aircraft through certification. That's a lot of paperwork. That yeah, lots of paperwork, and um, but, you know, had my hand held through the through the process. Came out the other end with a, a really nice sports balloon, fully type certified, and was uh, my first certification project. And wow. A fair amount of pressure to come back and continue working after that. <laughs> okay, son, you've shown you can do it. Now do it again. Yeah, and exactly. Again. And again. And again. So you've wound up going into the computer aided design and drafting and burying yourself in that as well as running the business. Yeah. Well, that was that was a natural extension. I mean, having played with computers since I was a kid. Um, I got into the, the visual arts side of it, um, you know, relatively early, and it, it wasn't a big stretch to, to figure out how to use AutoCAD. Um, and since then, moved on to SolidWorks and, and other sort of three D type designs. It just it fits the way my brain works, and uh, so I can move around it really quickly. Yeah. So you've sort of run the day to day of the of the um, business as well, or is, is Phil mostly focusing on that, and you're doing all the design work? Uh, well, my official role here is as a production manager and designer. Um, depending on the projects that are on, I will you know end up getting lost more in the design side of things because obviously that's the fun bit. Yeah. Um, but streamlining the production side of things is is one of my key roles. So. Yeah. Finding better ways to make good stuff. Yeah, well, not only that, but just just keeping the the work up to, to the staff we've got on the floor, making sure it all happens in the right order, mm-hmm. and uh, and that our quality system is maintained and, yeah, and all that. So that would have set you up pretty well for the uh, dreaded huge event of designing the series four burners, the crossfires. Indeed, that's uh, yeah. Well, that <laughs> that's been that's been a very long project, and in fact, when I first came here that was one of the carrots that was dangled was you know we need a new burner we don't have enough um, resources in terms of time for, um, for Phil to do to do that development by himself and run the business yeah so so come on in and we can do that and um, it's only taken about 10 years to get there yeah. but, uh, but yeah we got there in the end so you started designing back then or you, when did you really kick in and start working on the design of the there's been a lot of false starts. Um, I suppose the realities of small business certainly kicked in um, very early in the piece. You know, when I realised that there was a lot of other stuff that we had to get through. Yeah. And as much as it would be nice to just sit down and design a burner, 
uh, it's a very expensive project in terms of prototyping and, and everything else and, and other realities have kicked in. You know, we've had ups and downs in the economy and business speeding up and slowing down and, and when you get those changes of pace in business, um, your resources in terms of your staff and, and everything else have got to take priority. You know, you've got to, you've got to manage all that. So as nice as it would be to sit down at a computer for for six to 12 months and, and work through a project like that, it just never happened. Um, and also you have a lot of false starts with ideas. You know, we, we had a, a really narrow brief in terms of what we wanted to achieve. Um, or I should say a focus brief. It was anything but narrow. We had a lot of, a lot of goals that we needed to kick. Project, but um, but not a lot of leeway in terms of giving up performance or or uh, anything like that. So it took a while to get onto the right track to get the design to all come together yeah. where we wanted to. So the big push came really in the last eighteen months, and uh, and there was a really solid twelve months of, of prototyping phase and uh, and design work. Fit in between all the normal production work, um, and then the last six months would have been wrapping up the certification and uh, going through that side of it. Yeah. Okay. The um, now I understand like you've, you've done a lot of work uh, getting other parties to fabricate components that are all designed to uh, like this an impressive unit in terms of you've you've had you've tried to make it as easy to maintain as possible. Yeah. You have um, got third party fabrication of components coming. In you do a lot of the assembly. You've done. I know you were talking previously before we started recording about the computational fluid dynamics mm. because you've got gas expanding and heating and moving all around in these things. Yeah, it's not just oh let's turn on a flame and whoosh there's an oven. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're directing the flame, getting the most heat and power out of a, a single litre of, of gas, yeah. really, without putting yeah. without producing lots and lots of noise as well. Yeah. So I imagine that would have been a big part of it was, was working out those designs and calculations. Yeah, it was. Um, it's it's really interesting. I mean, the, the computer will tell you so much, um, and really it just it helps sort of direct your thinking. Um, in reality, a lot of the understanding and, and a really big part of the project for me was really talking through stuff with Phil. I mean, he's got 30 odd years of Bernard design experience and and there's a lot of subtle things that, that make these work or not work. Um, so a lot of it comes down to, to really guessing, um, educated guesses into, in terms of what direction you should take. The computer helped answer a few things in terms of narrow down what we're going to prototype and certainly you know computer aided design like 3d modeling and that sort of design everything the brochures try to sell people on you know how many reducing the number of prototypes and stuff like that is absolutely true because you can you can sit down in an afternoon you can have an idea in the middle of the night and i mean i sleep with a sketch pad beside my bed and yeah. much to you know my partner's joy, <laughs> she, she looked very suffering. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, but a light will go off, and yeah. and the bedroom light comes on, and, and you start sketching. And the joy of it is that you can sit down in front of a computer and you can draw it up um, and test it within the computer. You know, 
and uh, and see if that concept's going to work. And uh, and you don't have to worry about cutting metal, and you can sit on it for for a day or so, think about it, work through the implications, and and, and everything else, and, and go back. Yeah, yeah, it does save a lot of that time, and you, know, you would have been another year or so down the track if you had to go and sort of do a bit and then prototype it and learn from it and then figure out why it did what it did and then come back and do it some more. Yeah, well, it's not only that, but it's integration of the whole system. I mean, by the time we went into production, we had it designed from end to end. We've got four different models uh, in terms of a, a single burner, a double burner, a triple burner, and a quad burner. So all all four of those, the single burner's not in production yet, but but basically commonality of components, um, linking the whole thing together, joining it into the load frame and, and integrating it with the whole system, being able to design all of that before you cut metal yeah. is so important. Oh, yeah. So we were able to do all our prototyping from the coil system and the jet ring and everything else completely independent of the rest of the system, knowing that it would all fit together. Fantastic. Mm. And it's very impressive. You've been uh, pulling it all apart in front of us during the maintenance course and putting it all back together again. And uh, I was very impressed at the, like all the machining of like the component, single component that routes everything, all the gas flow comes through into all the different um, valves and burners and so on. And, yeah. and it's just a single base plate, but it's got everything in it. So yeah. there's been a lot of thought put into that. And uh, I hope one day I get to fly behind or beneath one. Yes. <laughs> 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 but I know I know Paul and, and Crocker are quite interested in checking them out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that'll help. Mm. But, um, look, it's uh, you've just now released it. You've gone through a lot of fun with prototyping and certification. Yep. Um, you had to fly a certain number of hours, I believe. Yeah. the The test schedule for the burner is is basically fifty hours of operation. Um, the majority of that is is ground testing, where we uh, we run cycles at, uh, at various pressure ranges so from minimum to maximum to you know, the standard sort of pressure ranges that it'll operate in and uh, so that that cycle testing on the ground was done first and then it's obviously inspected and then installed in an aircraft and then flown for a minimum of about 15 hours to, to represent standard flight time. Yeah, real, realistic conditions. Realistic conditions. And we did about 18 hours in total, just so we had a bit up our sleeve and mm-hmm. it's just the way it worked out. Now, all this is happening right about the time that CAS is changing to the EASA model and things like that. So was that much of an influence? Not really. Um, I mean, the way all these big certification projects work is that, that right at the very beginning, you you know, you lodge the project with CASA and, and it's pretty well set out what you're doing. So your test schedules and, and all that are on the table and approved well in advance. So... Um, in theory, not a lot of it happens at the last moment. Um, we, I wouldn't say we got caught out, but we we certainly um, weren't quite aware of some of the changes that had happened to do with um, conformity checks on first of time. So there was a lot of uh, catch up, and that was that was one of the things that stretched the end of the project out a little bit uh, because we obviously need to to conform the test unit and. Um, Paperwork requirements for that uh, incredible. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> onerous. <laughs> uh, no, onerous. Look, uh, I, I mean, I, I 
said before we started the interview and we, when we were talking about it, at the time I was tearing my hair out a little bit and the support and the information that we got from CASA was fantastic. Um, the, the reality of it at first when you looked at it, you thought this is ridiculous. But having done it, I understand why. And, and I mean, I learned a lot about the system uh, in doing it. We had to write custom database systems that tie in with our part systems and everything else. Um, I don't know how a small business would do this if they didn't have an IT specialist mm. in-house. Yeah. You know, I'm, we're spoiled in that I can write database systems and I can use everything from SolidWorks you know, through InDesign, Photoshop, you name it. It's, uh, they're all tools that I've got access to and, and the ability to use, um, which meant that we could streamline a lot of that yeah. conformity work. Um, so it shows in the manuals and everything. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. So, so if you didn't have access to, to someone who can do all that, it would be a difficult project mm. these days. But having done it, the, um, the drawings that have come out the other end, the certification drawings, I would like to think are the best we've ever produced. And, and as a way of checking your drawings and your processes and everything else uh, for manufacturing, we can very confidently say that you know what's going to be produced 10 years down the track is going to be what was you know, tested during certification. It's taking you to a whole new level and giving you a good foundation to prove stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It it makes it easier to run your business in the long run. Yeah. yeah. It's often the case. A bit of hard yards now makes it easier later and you can focus on other things. Exactly. Yeah. No one likes documentation, <laughs> but once it's in place, geez, it makes your life easier. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, next 10 years and things like that, uh, Crossfire Release 1 is out. Yep. It's being used in the wild. I was flying next to a balloon with it at Mildura. Yeah. Uh, the Scout balloon. What uh, what next, mate? Um, oh, look, that's a really interesting question. Um, there's lots of little projects. Uh, I mean, obviously, while we're doing the Crossfire project, we were doing uh, the Easy Access Basket project for one of the other operators yeah. in Melbourne. So putting doors in baskets for, uh, for access by passengers with restricted mobility. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more work in that area. Um, we've got smaller baskets that are used for, for tethering in Japan and stuff like that that want doors in them. Um, so, so there's little engineering projects like that. Uh, the single burner still needs to be finalised. It's got a different valve block, which uh, is yet to be realised in metal. It's sitting in the computer at the moment uh, as we fine-tune a few things. And then... Um, uh, but other than that, I mean, there's a lot in fabric technology that we need to keep chasing and that we're always, you know, working with to improve the fabrics. Uh, digital printing on balloons is is a big project for us. Um, at the moment, that's outsourced and, and working out if we can bring that in-house and or how we can, you know, get better results from, from outsourcing it. So, yeah, there's a... There's a number of things to play with. It'll it'll never stop. <laughs> no rest for the wicked. None at all. No. <laughs> all the insane. <laughs> cool. Anything else you'd like to say? No, not really. Um, yep. No, it's 
been great having you here for a few days. I hope you've enjoyed it. Loved it. Absolutely. Yeah. Really enjoyed getting into um, doing maintenance on balloons. And even if I don't, if, it, if I never went for my maintenance authority, I've learned enough that I think it'll make me a better pilot crew and I'll treat my gear a lot better at the least. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, the maintenance on balloons is, is really interesting because on the surface it looks really simple yeah. and, yeah. Like everything in aviation, there's the devil's in the detail. Exactly. (laughs) It's also been great to catch up with you again and uh, meet your dad and all the rest of the crazy crew here. Yes, not a problem. That's been great. Well, thanks for for coming along. No worries. Thanks, Sean. Thank you very much. John Wallington, you're organising the flying event of the uh, Canberra Spectacular. How's it all going? It's going very well. You know, we've had perfect weather every day, four days so far, and the forecast looks pretty good for the rest of the week. Yeah, it's not looking too bad. Friday may be a little dodgy, but that keeps getting pushed back. It was Wednesday, then Thursday, now Fridays. As long as it doesn't push back to the weekend, because we have such big crowds down here at the weekends. Yeah, now that is a major part of this, is that people are right in there with the balloons, and you've got the ponds, which is currently drained, but uh, you've got a lot of people around, and uh, it's quite an interesting show going on. It's a it's a unique um, learning event in sort of world learning events uh, circles. For starters, we're flying right out of the centre of a capital city uh, on lawns in front of the old Parliament House, and we allow the public to mingle with the balloons. We have some pretty good safety s- systems here with our fan control areas and keeping people away from the burners and the fans, but it still lets people get a lot closer than most other launch fields around the world. That's certainly the case. I'm very impressed with the uh, the fan protection. I'm going to take that back to Melbourne and suggest that we do it with, uh, with our operation back there because it uh, resolves the issue of people going near the fan and between the basket and the vehicle. Absolutely. Look, I uh, I kind of devised that system uh, after the terrible accident a couple of years ago and um, and it seems to work really well. It's simple, it's quick and it's easy. I can't, personally, I can't see any reason why everybody shouldn't be using something like that. Well, how long have you been involved with the Canberra, Canberra Festival? It's been going for about 29 years. Have you been here the whole time? I've actually been here uh, with balloons since uh, for about 33 years. Uh, so <laughs> before it became an official festival, we did actually have a little event in 1984 and in 1985, but 86 was the first uh, significant festival. Okay, so you've been with it from the beginning. What have you seen that's changed? Uh, the passenger balloons have got bigger um, and actually not a lot else has changed. It's be- It was in some ways uh, a little more commercialised in the past. We did have some pretty good sponsorship um, and uh, and so we used to structure things a little, a little bit more um, in, a, in a slightly more regimented manner to sort of satisfy the sponsors, but now it's become just a tremendously relaxed, low-key event where the pilots all behave themselves. Everybody's courteous to each other, and uh, and the public get amongst it. It's just become a very, a very friendly, fun little event. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say on the event and ballooning in Canberra? No, we just like pilots to come and visit us and uh, come for a, a, a fly here during the week. I mean, Canberra can be a pretty tricky place to fly with fairly bad weather through a lot of the year, but uh, autumn is is its prime time, and uh, so what better time to come than, than now. Well, we've certainly had the demo version of Canberra. Beautiful weather, quite warm in the afternoons, lots of people getting out and enjoying the weather, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed my time here, so thanks John, well done. Good, I'm pleased you could make it, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next year. Hopefully next year I'll be flying. <laughs> Indeed. Pretty good. Go on, you go on. no problems. Don Whitford, you're doing the uh, Met Officer role here for the Canberra Spectacular. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. I've done this for quite a few years now. I enjoy coming to Canberra. Now, you used to be uh, working full-time with the Met Office. How did you get into that role? 
Oh, I joined the uh, Bureau of Meteorology uh, on leaving school many years ago, 1967 in fact, uh, and I retired about 10 years ago and I've been doing some contract work for them ever since, uh, plus uh, ballooning weather and other aviation weather for the last 20 odd years as well. Did they give you the training straight from school or did you have to go through courses? Uh, yes, we uh, have, Bureau has its own training school in Melbourne, so we all go through that and train as a weather observer or as a meteorologist and um, then we get appointed to a posting somewhere around the country and uh, on you go from there. So you started as an observer and then to a meteorologist or director? Uh, I did start as an observer and eventually went into um, aviation forecasting and uh, went, did some more training for that and I've been involved in aviation forecasting now for over 40 years. You've seen a lot of changes then. Um, observers seem to be being replaced by um, automatic weather systems. The computers get more and more powerful, do more and more crunching. What's your views on the changing of uh, forecasting and, and the, the, the systems you've got? Well, the systems certainly have improved. Automatic weather stations were just non-existent uh, existent when I started. Same with weather radar and satellite imagery. All of those uh, technologies just weren't available when I started. We look back now and wonder how on earth we did it, but... Um, uh, I guess uh, we weren't quite so accurate in uh, in the 60s and 70s as we uh, we like to think we are now. The technology certainly has helped. Very soon we're going to be having 10-minute updated satellite imagery. That's pretty impressive. I know in the past you used to rely a lot on local knowledge because the people would, the locals would be able to look at the weather patterns, see what was coming through, and based on their 40 years living in the area, know what's happening. How, you don't really have that anymore, so I guess it's more reliant on the computers? Computer modelling is certainly a thing these days that we, we rely on enormously. There's so many models now, and they're, they're being fine-tuned almost on a daily basis. They're getting better and better all the time. They're amazing. How do you choose? If you, you do have good uh, multiple models. I know when I'm doing my own forecasting for my balloon flying or seeing what it's likely to happen for the commercial ops in Melbourne, I look at four or five different outputs that are, we've got access to, and they won't all say exactly the same thing, but you know that this over time... You get to know that this model is more accurate in these scenarios is uh, how do you figure do you do you look at all the different ones and then figure out what you're going to average it out to make the forecast yes more or less uh, there are, yes you say there are so many confusing models around these days and they invariably uh, come up with different results but having used them for many years you get to uh, rely on a certain model at certain times for instance if there's a low pressure system developing off the coast say up in the uh, northwest the uh, a particular model might pick that better than another model. So just experience would tell you that you'd go with this model because there's a low developing or a front moving through the southern states. Uh, some models pick those up better than others. You get to get to know and get to feel which model uh, is reliable under under certain different uh, um, uh, weather situations. Okay. Now you've got a lot of you've got the publicly accessible information from the Bureau of Meteorology. You've got some ch- uh, paid systems that if uh, some groups pay money and get access to more detailed information but there's also weather underground there's uh, willy weather there's all sorts of sites out there um, do you use any of those yourself occasionally i look at them but uh, all their data all their base forecast data basically comes from the bureau anyway so i prefer to use the bureau sites by the way the uh, the most uh, commonly used um, website in the country yep. so it's definitely one of my favorites <laughs> so you've um, you've been in aviation forecasting have you um, done much flying yourself no, I haven't. I've uh, I've not 
been tempted to take up flying at all. I'm happy to go flying with people uh, in balloons or hang gliders or whatever. I've done weather for hang gliding events, gliding events, paragliding and, and 20 years of ballooning. So I'm happy to fly with people, but I've never been tempted to take it up myself. Okay. Now, I understand you've also done some work with the military and so on. What's the different kind of information that the different pilots require? Do you just naturally adjust to that or do you, have, you, have you learned that over time, what they all need? Because everyone's looking like balloonists look at microclimate in the local area, whereas someone travelling a long way is wanting to know what it's like on the other side of the world and so on. How, how does that adjust? Well, every uh, RAF base, depending on the squadrons, the type of aircraft they fly, whether it's a training base or not a training base, they all require different uh, weather uh, information. Recently, I've been working over at the Pierce RAF base, uh, where um, number two flight training school is. So they're learning to fly there. Uh, well, they're already able to fly, but they're you know, there to get their wings and become a RAF pilot. So their requirements are different. They're p- flying PC-9s. Um, so we're concentrating more or less on the low level or, or more the short term. So the TAF or the, uh, the trend type forecast is vitally important for those operations. When I go to Tyndall, say, where 75 Squadron, the Hornets are, they are more interested in what's happening in the upper atmosphere because of their laser-guided systems. They're interested in um, humidity and, and whatever else might be in the atmosphere to uh, interfere with their systems. Not And also thunderstorms, of course, in the wet season. Um, they're usually flying on minimum fuel coming back from a sortie, so they don't want thunderstorms on the runway threshold. So that's why we have a Met man there at Tyndall concentrating on the, um, on the uh, surface weather there, particularly during the wet season. But their requirements are more... Uh, in the, in the upper atmosphere than the lower level. Okay. And then you've got maritime patrol going out for ages and very coastal and out over the oceans. It's a whole different model again all out there. They they are. We don't have a, a Met office any longer at Edinburgh uh, where those guys operate from, so they tend to look after themselves. Um, they're flying long haul, as you know, uh, so they don't necessarily rely on a, a Met person to guide them with their weather. They can um, generally sort that out for themselves. Okay. So coming back to Canberra, you're here for the festival. Uh, what what is it about Canberra that keeps bringing you back? It's just such a great festival. The atmosphere is always good. There's always up to 30-odd balloons here. It's not a competition as such, so there's less pressure. Uh, people are here to enjoy themselves. The weather can be fickle here at times. Uh, some some years I've been here, and we've flown, what, two or three days a week. This year looks like we'll get through every day. So uh, it's always a challenge from my point of view to try and pick the conditions uh, for them. But uh, it's just a, a friendly atmosphere here. Uh, it's a great, great city to come to. Yeah. Okay, now... Uh, there's always the joke about right, wrong. The weatherman's always there. Uh, as you said, the models are getting better. I think. Uh, do you find do you find that uh, your forecasts are getting you know one or two days out are getting more accurate these days? Oh, without doubt. There's no doubt now. I mean, you might be aware that you know the public weather forecasts now go out to seven days with a fair amount of confidence now. Whereas when I started, uh, you know, day two was a challenge. So uh, we've come a long way from those days. Okay. Uh, everyone's talking, of course, about how things have changed. Um, I know down in Melbourne over the last 16 years or so it feels like it's getting more and more humid down there people are talking about Brisbane weather coming down to Sydney, things like that as a forecaster uh, I know you're not a climatologist or things like that but what changes have you observed is this all part of a, do you think it's a cycle or have, have you seen some definite changes happening? 
Well, yes, I mean, unfortunately, this argument has become a little politicised, so um, it's, uh, it's it's a little awkward with, with some people. But I, I, I believe uh, things are changing. I think the science is uh, stacking up pretty conclusively now that uh, our systems are changing. And um, over the 40-odd years that I have been involved in meteorology all over the country, by the way, I've been in Darwin for many years and most other cities as well, and capital cities, uh, I, the seasons definitely seem to be changing to me um, and spring into um, spring season summer autumn all, all you know just changing subtly um, ever so subtly so uh, I, I I'm, I'm pretty convinced that um, what we uh, see about climate change these days is really happening yeah. well, I'm hearing stories from uh, fishermen about uh, warm water fish coming south you're hearing stories about uh, pl- uh, plants flowering earlier and uh, species moving south or coming north things like that so yeah uh, when you're getting anecdotal evidence as well as uh, the science back there, it, it does seem to indicate that something is changing, that's for sure. Well, I've noticed that myself. I've got a country house in northeast Victoria up in the Alpine area, and uh, I noticed that spring seems to be happening earlier. Uh, I noticed the you know the bulb plants like daffodils and, and tulips seem to be flowering earlier, and the wattles are coming out earlier than 20, 30 years ago. So maybe something's happening. <laughs> the things are changing. The whys, the hows, the wherefores, well, we just get on and deal with it, right? We do. Uh, Tomorrow is the bigger challenge. Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Frank Wechter, you're here in Canberra flying the Angry Bird special shaped balloon. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. We're delighted to be in here in Australia. This is not your first visit to Australia, though, is it? I was back here in 88 where I was involved in a trans... Australia crossing with 22 flights and uh, but this is my first visit recently what's uh, what got you into ballooning Oh, it's a, a long story, but simply uh, I owned a movie theater. We were showing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I got home at 4 o'clock in the morning after cleaning up the theater. I went outside to uh, at dawn to go get the Sunday paper in my robe and flip-flops, and a balloon landed in my backyard, and that's how I got started. Yeah, hold this rope, mate. <laughs> Will you please hold me down? And after I came and held him down and his crew didn't show up, would you like to go for a flight? Certainly. Let me go change into some uh, uh, tennies and in blue jeans. He said, no, 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 if you let go, uh, I'll, I'll take off. So I, my first flight was in my robe and flip-flops. <laughs> That's fantastic. Talk about safety gear. <laughs> Inadequately dressed, but it changed my life profoundly for the rest of rest of my whole life. Now, I understand you do competitions, you do commercial, and you do the shapes, bumping shapes around the world. Is that correct? I do. Uh, we own a company called Global Media Box, and we campaign shapes around the world. We're currently working with the Angry Bird shape that is licensed to Rovio, and uh, the Angry Bird is the most downloaded game in the history of the world. And we're currently on our third uh, circuit around the world. Pretty impressive. And uh, here you are at Canberra. What's your thoughts on the Canberra Festival? Canberra Festival is a world-class festival. The flying is superb. The people are a bit crazed, uh, but utterly delightful. Anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Uh, thanks for having us here. Thanks for bringing us here. We're delighted to be down under. Squadron leader Damien Gilchrist, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Thanks, Grant. Great to be here. Excellent. Now, mate, uh, you're with the RAF, and uh, you're flying one of the oldest forms of aviation. You're uh, you're on the balloon patrol. Yes, uh, the balloon flight uh, set up 25 years ago, so we've been all around Australia since doing a lot of uh, work with the community. That's the whole idea, is get the community engaged. Uh, it's not behind barbed wire, it's right there in their face. They can come and touch and feel, get inside, enjoy it. Cool. And, uh, mate, you're a squadron leader now. 
now? What's been your career path through the RAF? Uh, well, unusual in that I was uh, transferred from the Royal New Zealand Air Force about 15 years ago. Uh, but since then, uh, had a great career. Uh, working in uh, Russell over in the west in Perth, um, flying hawks. Uh, I got out for a few years and joined the, and was reserve only, but I'm back in full time now doing the balloon. Okay. And in New Zealand, what uh, what were you flying over there? Uh, Strike Masters, A4 Skyhawks, uh, Mackie 339s, um, yeah, and a couple of other training types as well. So you must be pretty happy that there's a couple of Blunties uh, now flying at Ardmore. Oh, yeah, it's, um, Blunties a great aeroplane. It was uh, it had a few fatigue problems early in its life, but once those were, uh, I guess, um, once we learned how to cope with those, they were a great training training platform. Are you going to have No, they were great. I was just over there at uh, Ardmore recently having a look. But uh, So um, how long have you been flying the balloon? About five years now, uh, in earnest in the last 12 months. But prior to that, I was probably rocking up about 30, 40 hours a year. You've got to wait for the good weather. So gaining experience and time in a balloon um, does take a fair bit of time, and it's it's good to come in with a fair bit of experience too. It just means you, you can get all that airmanship stuff out of the way and under control and then learn to deal with the uh, unique characteristics of flying with, uh, without an engine and lighter than air. So how did you actually get pipped for the balloon? Did you get interested in doing it private or was it offered to you in the RAF? I was taken for, uh, for a commercial flight um, for my 40th birthday and then having seen the RAF balloon flying around Canberra a lot, I thought, well, maybe they need somebody else to help. And after a couple of years, uh, we talked each other into it and um, there I was, yeah, just doing it part-time, but now it's a full-time gig. Yeah. So you've talked about how you uh, do a lot of community engagement and RAF awareness with the balloon. Yeah. Uh, what's special for you about the Canberra Festival, the Canberra Balloon Spectacular in particular? Well, Canberra's our birthplace. Our first flight was here 25 years ago. It's where we do most of our training. Um, it's We get a good crowd for the community. Uh, the community comes in and comes to us rather than us going to them. And, and also it's a great chance to just learn a little bit more about uh, what's going on in ballooning circles around Australia and uh, catch up with the, the people who have been doing it for you know 25, 30 years, as well as you know, pass a bit of knowledge on to the new guys as well. Yep. And I note that you've got two here because I was just flying uh, in reasonable formation with uh, your other balloon that was having some fun out on the lake. And... Uh was this one. You actually came back with yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, this was this one. We came back. Oh, wow. You yeah. guys were quick. We only just got back ourselves. <laughs> oh, right. So, no, we, we la- flew back and landed here. Oh, okay. You boxed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I watched the fog and I wasn't sure if anyone was going to get back. Yeah, it took us, um, it, it was the fourth fourth attempt when the fog had finally cleared, so that worked. Well done. But you also do have, like, two or three balloons. There's the one you can fly, the one you can tether, and the one you can jump in castle. Yeah, pretty much. And we've got the uh, the old uh, envelope ready to roll here, so we'll hopefully be able to get some people inside. Yeah, Grant, look at the right one spot. I, and one I prepared earlier. Yeah, <laughs> should have just looked at the right spot. Well, Damien, anything else you'd like to say? Uh, no, look, just thanks for, to the public for coming down. It's been uh, it's been great conditions and a great great uh, spectacle as usual. So hopefully see you around Australia some other time. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks, Grant. Richard Turnbull, it's been quite a while, but welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Very well, thanks. Yes, I seem to remember last time it was in a noisy garage underground. Yeah, just as the guys were backing the vehicles in after their days flying. <laughs> so, uh, mate, you're back in Australia, you're flying, and how's it all been? Oh, very good. I've been down the Yarra Valley flying for Go Wild Ballooning, and now up here, did a day for Balloon Loft, and I've uh, been flying with some friends, flew for the Scouts this morning. Cool. So, anything and everything, really. <laughs> what, do you, what do you find about Canberra? What is it special about this event? Oh, well, you've got the urban and you've got the countryside and lovely parks and if you know the uh, wind currents or watch other people to find out where they are you can usually have lovely landings in easy places okay cool anything else you'd like to say just a real quick chat about what you're doing here and how life's treating you 
Oh, life's grand. You know, could do with a bit more work. Could we all? all. (laughs) Well, less work, more money for the work. Yes. (laughs) Okay, Richard, thanks for coming back on the show and have a great rest of the the, uh, spectacular while you're here. No worries. Nice to talk to you again. Cheers. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series, where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Ruth Wilson, you are Australia's first female commercial pilot. What got you into ballooning? Journalism. I was a journalist in Japan and I met New Zealand and I was asked to look for interesting men to interview and I met a balloonist. There were two in New Zealand and three in Australia in 1975. So I've been flying for 40 years now. Okay. And so you, you sort of went for a balloon flight and discovered the bug and thought, I can do this? It was passion. As soon as I saw the basket and hopped in, I knew I was born to fly balloons. Um, I just love to be in the air. I also have a fixed wing license, you know, for Cessnas and Pipers. Uh, but I found the balloon first, and that's my mistress. Okay. And uh, then you decided you could uh, take people flying and make some money out of it and went commercial. How'd you, where'd you start with that? Well, I didn't do that because when I started, we didn't have the passenger ride business. Uh, and I've never done the passenger ride business. My commercial ballooning was always with uh, major sponsorships, with Kodak and Kellogg's and Tupperware bought my first balloon for me back in 1975. And so I did that whole commercial adventure, filming, uh, documentaries, uh, that kind of world and competition because I was the first Australian champion and that put me on the world stage of competition. So took me overseas. There wouldn't have been many ladies in competition ballooning back then, were there? No, it was me and 99 men. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good 99 men and I, or me. (laughs) Title for a book. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one that gets, that's that's the after dark version. (laughs) Uh, But I, I lived in Canberra for six years and I have flown in many countries. I do love alpine ballooning. I fly over the Austrian Alps and the Swiss Alps in the snow. I love that. But Canberra is probably one of the prettiest cities to take off and fly down the lake and, and it's just a beautiful city. Yep. It's really lovely. And is that what keeps bringing you back to the Fiesta? Well, this is their 29th year and I've flown here 28 of the events. So, yes. And it's yep. lovely to see everybody, as you know, coming together. But I think if you're born with that love of the sky as your playground, you, 
it's you that's it you just yeah. know it and yeah. uh, I just feel ha- I'm so blessed to go dancing on the clouds lovely and uh, it looks like you've been having fun the four days that I've been seeing in the air so uh, anything else you'd like to say while we're here uh, look I think it's wonderful the way the people of Canberra greet us and support the ballooning community and as as the most demanding part of any I think all aviation but particularly ballooning is the landing so it's always nice to be welcomed and helped when we land Mm. and one other last question I just realized there was something we didn't mention in this quick chat women fly it forward Uh, you got involved in that and uh, flew a couple of ladies for their first flight I believe yes um, I'm, I'm keen to get people for the first flight that's just as everyone knows when you take somebody up. So I was able to take two young women and one of them is keen to learn to fly to balloon. So I'm happy about that. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's what the whole point of the flight forward is, is it to is. expose to the fact that to young ladies that, hey, you can fly and it's not a male thing. Anyone can do it. Yes. Well, I guess I'm an example. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> After 40 years, I'm still actively yep. flying balloons yep. around the world. So, yep. And that, yeah. that look of that look in people's face and the magic and when they realise what they're doing, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Yes. I have very close friends who own a Cirrus and fly regularly. Uh, they're coming flying with me on Saturday morning. and But they say to me, I don't understand the whole feeling, you know, not knowing where you're going. But it's part of the adventure, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you get an idea, you get a bit of a plan, but then you just got to be flexible. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes I pray a lot. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Ruth Wilson, okay. thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Lovely. Kevin Cooper, we've just had a great ride in your uh, chariot balloon. Uh, can you describe what your chariot is for us? Yeah, it's a um, it's a TNC, Thunder and Colt. Um, it has an airship tank underneath it, um, dual uh, feed, and um, I don't think there's really any other way to fly, but I'm sure I'll be corrected on that if it's an aviation uh, show. But um, no, absolutely uh, I absolutely love it. So, uh, first got involved with one of these, I think in 19... About 1988, Graham Scaife had one. Of course, his was leather. Mine's only material. But um, as soon as this came up, which used to belong to Judy Lynn and Peter Vizzo, um, couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And uh, it's now the only way to fly. And I think part of the reason is um, only takes one myself, pilot, and one passenger. I don't have many friends. Um, And uh, it all fits in the back of the ute. So as you can see, it's... uh, well, you can't see on the radio, but it's um, yeah, the chariot sits on the on the ute, the fan, and and the, the envelope, yep. which is a sixty-five. So you can put a forty-two or um, fifty-six or a sixty-five on it. Okay. I like the sixty-five, so it gives me the option with the basket if I want it. Yep. Um, but also, it gives me uh, great duration. Yeah. Probably get with sixty kilo young. Well doesn't have to be young but um 60 kilo passenger um you know two hours flying time yep. so it's good. yeah and for those who don't know the 45 the 50 60 kind of thing that's uh, rel- relative to the size of the balloon and thousands of cubic feet so you're flying under a 60,000 cubic foot bag of air and uh if you've never seen a chariot it's side by side seating it's like a chairlift hung under a balloon so it's like you're going up in one of those ski lifts to the top of the mountain but you've got a balloon over the top of you it's absolutely fantastic and uh I- i've always loved flying balloons 
tunes and the views and the experience, but uh, sitting in the chair with your feet dangling, you just got to make sure that anything you're using, like radios, cameras, and so on, are all tethered, because if you drop them, they're not going anywhere except down. <laughs> yeah, and um, and if the if the wind, you know, if it's slightly fast, we've got rotational vents. We turn around and uh, it's got a skid underneath, so you're sitting on the tank with a metal skid, and um, it uh, just comes in backwards. So you, you always land backwards unless it's very calm, like it was this morning. When you land forwards. So you don't wind up doing a Flintstones run along until you stop? No, that's right, that's right. So no gravel rash, so that's good. <laughs> well, today's landing was pretty nice. Uh, just touched down in a forecourt at uh, ANU and uh, Australian National University and much to the uh, mirth of those around. Yeah, it's a bit of concern because it was straight out the front of the uh, medical research. So flying one of these things and landing at the front door, <laughs> I guess there's uh, a lot of opportunity for the students to research people that fly these things. But uh, yeah, no, it was great. I mean, just... Uh, uh, you know, over the trees and little opportunity before Black Mountain, which, um, I mean, going over, you know, you've got to be conscious we've only got one tank um, to fly on. So the advantage with the baskets is that you might, normally when I fly a basket over Canberra, I always fly and land with one full tank. Um, with this, I only have one full tank to inflate on and fly and land. So um, just very fuel management, you know, very, very cautious about going over Black Mountain. Um, so, no, it's all good. It all works out well. So how did you get to this point in your aviation career? What got you into flying and what kind of flying have you done? Right. Well, it's, um, I used to work uh, in England and um, very good friend, Graham Scaife, um, started working with him when I left school. And uh, so his ballooning career and my ballooning career, I guess, started at the same time. Um, and it was basically a combination of having far too many drinks in an English country pub one night and... And um, then working out, much to Graham's delight, that uh, it could actually write a lot of this off on tax because it was an opportunity to advertise on the envelope. Um, and, yeah, the first flight of the Thunder... Um, it was a Thunder and Colt um, 60 with a skirt, not a scoop. Um, and, uh, yeah, his first flight was in his own balloon. Oh, wow. And then uh, I came out to Australia backpacking. And then Graham rang up and said, guess what? We're going to fly across Australia in 1988. Do you want to come along? I'm like, let me think about that for a couple of minutes. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, bought a car and off we did. Off we went and in a Ford Fairlane. So all these poor buggers, they all had four-wheel drives and they're all on their big adventure across Australia. And this uh, old cocky, I said, I need a vehicle to buy for this uh, opportunity to go across Australia with a balloon. And he said, well, he said, you might need a four-wheel drive out there. He said, there'll be plenty of them. And he said, it's a long way to drive, so get something comfortable. <laughs> so we had a Ford Fairline and, and a Fairlane, and it was like a snoozemobile. So we fly drive event for three weeks. And then Graham and I, we did Canberra, 10 days. Then we went across to Perth, and we did three weeks across Australia. And then we did the national championships at Canoundra, where I met Steve Griffin and dropped a hang glider. I think that's probably one of the first hang gliding drops from a balloon, okay. whether it was legal or not. But we won't talk about that because he's a passer now. Yeah, well. Anyway, um, so no, that was that, and I've been flying ever since. So okay. just got back from the Philippines, flying up there. So I've flown in Europe and the UK, I've British pilot license and commercial license here. And yeah, just uh, yeah, on and off, just okay. loving it. Yeah. And what is it about Canberra that you love? What, what makes you come back to the festival? It's just such a great organised event. 
I mean, thankfully the government see the opportunity of having balloons, so they sponsor the, the hotels, the gas, the breakfast. Um, you tend to get a combination of pilots from all over Australia coming to this event, whereas the others tend to be a little bit New South Wales, Victoria concentrated. So it's great to catch up with people you haven't seen. And uh, yeah, the whole thing, you know, Canberra's challenging. It's not, you know, you, you've got to be onto it. You know, if the wind picks up, yes, you get pushed out, but it's more if the wind drops and you're over the lake or you're over the city. And there's not many capital cities that uh, in the world, I don't think, probably the only capital city in the world that you can fly as a private pilot. Um, and that is just fantastic. I mean, it's just such a visual spectacular for, for everybody involved. So, yeah. That's great. Cool. Anything else you'd like to say about your chariot, Canberra and so on? Um... No, just think, uh, you know, I take my hat off to these people that organise these events and people, certainly these organisations that do all this job, do all these jobs. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Jeff Feller, you're flying the Cathay Pacific balloon. How are you going here in Canberra? Oh, we're loving it. It's been uh, absolutely beautiful weather and uh, great flying conditions here this year. Yeah, it's certainly getting a lot of days and it looks like we've got more days coming up. Yep. Um, you know, some years we get cancelled pretty early on and we have uh, only a few days, but I think we're going to fly nearly every day here, you know, so far. Yep. So, Jeff, you've had a real interesting path to get to where you are now. Um, it includes air forces, it includes uh, commercial airlines. Can you talk us through what got you into flying and where you are today? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, uh, at a very young age, probably, you know, kind of eight years old, I decided that I wanted to be a pilot. And then probably at about the age of uh, nine or ten, somebody told me how expensive it was going to be. So uh, me and uh, two of my best friends, you know, at school, um, we all decided we are going to be pilots together and we all decided we are going to join the Air Force together because that was going to be the way we could afford to do it. And, uh, you know, uh, in the end, um, out of the three of us, two of us joined at the same time. We did uh, all of our training at the Defence Academy together. Uh, his name's Bernie Gleeson. I'll drop his name in there. Um, so myself and Bernie Gleeson, um, we did all of our training at the Defence Academy together. We did pilot school together. We went and flew C-130s together. And, um, and in that time, uh, I then popped on down here to Canberra to fly the RAF balloon for a small stint of time. And uh, then after that, we both ended up in 2FDS instructing together. So we taught on the PC-9. Um, I kept up my ballooning as a bit of a hobby after doing it uh, with the Air Force as a job. Um, and then we both end up back flying C-130. So it is kind of a joint story here between myself and Bernie. Now, eight years ago, I went off and joined Cathay Pacific, and it's probably the first time we ever split up since we were in kindergarten. So he's still in the Air Force and has uh, recently done a job down in the, the roulette RAF display team. So he spent the last couple of years flying uh, in Formula 1 Grand Prix and that, and I've been sitting up in Hong Kong flying a, a big jet. So uh, we're still best mates, but uh, now living on opposite sides of the planet from each other. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes it hard for the bromance to continue that way. Yeah, I spend more time living with him than I have with my real family, so uh, I know him better than my, my, my siblings. <laughs> it's funny how military can do that for you. It is. We have spent a lot of time, we've shared a lot of great experiences together, but anyway, I don't want to get into too much of the bromance, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, especially not as some things that happen in, ha- happen on uh, exercise, stay on exercise, yeah, exactly. but some of the pub, pubs and clubs, but uh, so you're flying the Cathay balloon, um, it's registration is Golf Charlie X-Ray, Charlie X-Ray, CX of course being the Cathay call sign. Um, sorry, not the Cathay call sign, the uh, Cathay flight number. Yeah, the abbreviation, yep. yep. Um, so what's, what sort of flying have you done with Cathay? Um, I've joined Cathay and I uh, joined straight on to, straight out of the Air Force on the C-130, straight onto the 747 in Cathay. I went as a second officer. 
um, to move to Hong Kong. And um, I did my time as a second officer, which went, for, you know, three to four years, um, and upgraded a, a few years ago to become a first officer on the 747. And so now I'm a, a 747 FO, and we pretty much, you know, I, I fly both passenger and freight. Uh, and pretty much go where Cathay tells me to so we fly the 747 all over the world you know I've been all through Europe um, places we don't normally go to like even Brussels which you know caught me a bit by surprise because it was a call out for that but um, you know just to name off some of the places there's London, Paris, Amsterdam, uh, Rome, uh, Frankfurt were some of the European places North America um, is you know Anchorage and Alaska, uh, LA, San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, Texas you know Houston and Texas um, Chicago, and we pop on down to South Africa every now and then. We used to go to Joburg, uh, Auckland, get down to Sydney every now and then, and we do a lot of regional, which is pretty much everything in the area. So that's, you know, Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam. We do a bit of India. You name it, we've been there in the 747. That's pretty impressive. That's a hell of a lot of the planet you've covered there. And uh, were you around in the Kai Tak days? No, no, I missed the Kai Tak days. I've, I've flown it in the simulator. It was a great deal of fun. Um, but sadly, no, it was before my time. Yeah. I haven't never done it on the flight deck, but I've done it as a passenger a couple of times, and that was enough fun just looking out the window going, woo Lucky, very lucky for you, yeah. There's not many people can speak that have had that experience. It was quite a, a special place to fly and do, apparently. Yeah. Uh, the friends that I met up with there for a business meeting one day, uh, we were just flying in for the day, and they, they said, oh, you like aircraft here? Quick. And they went up to the top of the um, the car park, and we just stood there for half an hour watching everyone come in from the uh, ground. Yeah, the, uh, the checkerboard approach. You were sitting above the checkerboard. Yep. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, mate. Fantastic. So um, what's your thoughts on ballooning? Uh, you know, you've flown C-130s, PC-9s, 747s. Here you are flying a balloon. Uh, many people would say, why? Look, ballooning uh, presents its own special challenges, I've got to say. Um, it's actually, I have a, obviously a background in aviation, um, but I've got to say, it. Uh, I've had more exciting experiences flying a balloon at times than I have in aviation, in other forms of aviation. Uh, I've had some great stuff in aviation, but um, in, in aircraft, I should say, but we throw so much control away when you hop into a balloon, which I'm used to having when I'm in an aircraft. So that's probably the biggest thing for me to, to get past is... Um, is not having the control that I, you know, and, and some people might say that, you know, pilots are control freaks to a degree. We like to have everything's trained and organised and planned. You know, I don't take off without knowing that everything's going to go fly, fine and safe for the day. And whilst ballooning is inherently safe, I can't, when, for me, whenever I take off, there's always this little kind of feeling of like, I don't have as much control as I do have in my aeroplane. So it does have its own uh, challenges and it does give me a different feeling to flying. I saw I don't do aerobatics like I used to do in the PC-9 and, and I don't fly like I flew in Iraq and Afghanistan in the C-130, which was exciting as well um, and had its own certain risks. But um, whilst ballooning looks benign, um, it, uh, it keeps you on your toes and you do work pretty hard especially you know towards the end of the flight when you're trying to get into a small spot and the wind might come up and and you are so affected by uh, the weather around you yep that microclimate and uh, you're coming into target a, fl- a field and suddenly you kick right and uh, there's a tree line exactly you know uh, in the airplane I've got dozens of controls in the balloon I've pretty much got up and down <laughs> so uh, and it's it's all done using that so 
it's great it's great fun and mate here at Canberra you've had a few flights but you've also done a mega epic tether uh, that was very heroic you had that cafe balloon up till about 10.30 in the morning yeah look um when I was in the RAF, the, the RAF balloon guys and uh, and the RAF balloon looks great these days as well. You know, I did it in 2001 um, and we used it for a lot of tether. That was kind of the job with the, the, the RAF balloon. It was, there were two main things we did in the RAF balloon, which was to, uh, to either tether at uh, shows and events. You know, we did the Gundagai Dog on the Tucker Box Festival and we do things out at Pialigo. And then we go to the big ones like Formula 1 and Grand Prix. So I've done a lot of tether at the RAF balloon. Most balloon pilots aren't really big fans of doing tether because it's long and it's it's tiring and uh, you know it's it's not exactly exciting. And it wears but out the equipment. It, does, it wears out your balloons. It reduces their life significantly by tethering. Um, but uh, of course, I'm here with Cafe, and I am representing the company. Um, uh, uh, it, even though this is done in my free time, this isn't paid by a cafe. This is done, uh, you know, I guess as a hobby. Um, if we can't fly in the morning, and I do feel for the people who we have people here at the Canberra Festival who've come down from Sydney, they've got up at two o'clock in the morning and driven all the way down, you know. Um, and, and ballooning is so affected by the environment. I, you, the balloon organisers, you know, always feel so bad when people miss out. So um, I try and help out the balloon, uh, uh, the event organisers, I should say. And um, we provide a few rides. They're all free of charge and. We, we get, you know, kids and parents that may never have a go in ballooning in the basket to, to have a quick uh, stint up and down. It worked great, you know, and people appreciate that. Yeah, well, it certainly had the cafe brand. Uh, the cafe brand was certainly right there for everyone. Uh, you couldn't miss it. Well, you know, I've got to do my bit for the company as well, you know. It's part for me and part for the company. So, you know, they are they are giving me a balloon, so I uh, try and do the best by them as well. Cool. Anything else you'd like to say about the Canberra Festival itself? Look, the, I've been uh, coming to the Canberra Festival since 2000 when I first started ballooning and uh, I actually uh, had some of my very first ballooning experiences uh, operating here at the Canberra Festival. I learnt to fly in Canberra so I was lucky, you know, this was kind of my home turf flying here. I think it's a great event and I hope it continues for a, a long time to come. You know, there are not many places in the world where you can fly over a nation's capital uh, in a hot air balloon and Canberra is such a beautiful place to do it. Uh, it certainly is. I've loved my flights over here. It's been great to see. So, Jeff, thank you very much. Thanks for bringing the Cathay balloon along and uh, well done for uh, showing the flag. No worries. Thank you very much. You have a good day. Nick Purvis, sales director from Cameron Balloons. Welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? I, I'm doing well. It's what a fantastic place to come fly balloons. Oh, Canberra's been magic. I've had a blast flying here so far. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I came here in 1997 and uh, the atmospheres uh, just get better and better. Well, I noticed that you're flying the up balloon, the one that's got all the little, looks like little helium balloons all around it. Yeah, it's called, it's been nicknamed locally Freckles, but yes, we, we've been uh, sort of talking about it as up, down, under. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And that, that balloon was made, uh, what, about five years ago or so for the movie? Yeah, it was made for the Disney movie Up uh, as a promotion uh, for it in Europe. And so it went round on a tour. Uh, and once the, the film had done its job, so had the balloon. And we've been very fortunate to inherit it uh, uh, back into our fleet. And you're allowed to fly it. You don't have to get the owner's permission to take no, it. No, we have an agreement with Disney that we're allowed to fly it as an example of Cameron Balloon's uh, 
special shaped product. Yeah, because well, I mean, it must have been pretty tricky to make it because it looks like a whole lot of a cluster of helium balloons, but it's actually a hot air balloon. Yes, it's one of those that looks really jolly and simple, but uh, actually the engineering and the design to get that uh, random look of a load a bunch of children's balloons, it, trying to design random is very difficult. <laughs> so the uh, it's down as much to the graphics team as the engineering team. Yep. And um, of course, we decide to stand under a tree full of glass. Uh, <laughs> well, it just makes it so sort of... Uh, you know, uh, Welcome to Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't be anywhere else. No, exactly. Now, there's the famous photo of that balloon uh, going through the um, London Bridge, I believe it is. Yes, it went on a barge as part of the launch and uh, it went uh, inflated on a barge at night through Tower Bridge. And to get the authorities to give this permission was a great coup. Oh, yeah. um, and that was done by the original uh, operator. Uh, but the photograph appeared on the front page of the Times and it's iconic. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than no, that. No, it's fantastic. Wow. Well, speaking of hardcore engineering and, uh, and all that kind of stuff... You're here, uh, Camerons have made the new RAF special shape balloon for the Royal Australian Air Force, shaped like a fighter pilot's helmet. Talk to me about how that came up and what went into designing and building that. Well, the, the RAF had, for some years have been talking about having a special shape and of course a helmet is not only iconic but it's actually sort of the right kind of shape to start with. And uh, with all due credit to them, they worked really quite hard in uh, designing and defining the shape that it should be. Uh, and they put it out to tender. Uh, it was over nearly two years ago now that this uh, whole project kicked off uh, finally. Uh, a number of companies pitched for it under uh, our pitch. I don't know about anybody else's, but our pitch included some quite detailed graphics from our technical design guys to show how the balloon may look in all from all aspects uh, as an interpretation of their requirements. Now, I've um, I've seen the work you folks can do with, uh, for instance, I've crewed the OVO balloon right. and its annual inspections, and that's like I believe it's 300 DPI on that one. It's, it's like yeah. looking at a photo. Yes, and we have a great policy at Cameron Balloons that if it looks good close up, then it's going to look good up in the air. Um, and we do have a large format uh, printer, it's a three meter wide twin spool printer. So once we set up uh, the texture, the artwork, or whatever it is onto the three-dimensional design that the technical guys have drawn. Imagine it like a three-dimensional um, jigsaw puzzle. Okay. So what we do is the technical guys design the each individual part of the puzzle, the panels. The graphics guys then take each panel and map on the texture, the artwork, whatever it is that's required onto that panel. And the seamstress then printed, uh, each individual panel being an element of this puzzle, and the seamstresses sew it together, and hopefully it all comes back into one piece. Because you're, you're even, um, like a balloon, for those who don't know, a balloon has load tapes running up the outside um, between panels and so on. And, and I mean, sometimes you see some artwork and you've got a, a white or a black load tape going through, but you're actually painting over the top of the load tapes? Yeah, well, what we do is each load tape, uh, where it crosses or intersects with any of the graphics part, has a little strip of uh, element of that graphic uh, sewn on top of the load tape so that it matches up. But I think you've highlighted one of the key elements 
elements of designing any special shape. You know, it's a flying work of art. But our job as a balloon manufacturer at Cameron's is to take that uh, aesthetic and make it a safe flying machine. Because at the end of the day, it is an aircraft. Correct. And so if, if anyone's ever looked inside a, um, a special shape, you'll see that unlike a normal balloon, which is just this big empty space with a few ropes in it, uh, you've got all sorts of gussets and material. And it's not just for compartmentalization. They, they play a significant part in the load, don't they, carrying the load? Absolutely, because you've got two loads in a way. You've got the, the pressure load of the hot air, which is pretty small, you know, it's, uh, compared with the, the payload, the basket, uh, burners, passengers, uh, fuel, which is hanging underneath. And what we have to do is we have to take this sort of, it's almost a point load, and distribute it over the surface of the envelope. And, of course, the more complex the surface, the more you need to have the gussets and diaphragms uh, to distribute that load evenly over this rather convoluted surface with masks and uh, other goggles and visors and and all the rest of it. Hose and everything. And then you've got to also maintain the pressure of the envelope so that those added add-on pieces, the oxygen mask in the case of the helmet, uh, uh, all of those bits and pieces are inflated off the main structural load uh, which carries it. Yeah, because I've I've flown the nudie balloon, uh, the little nudie purple monster guy who's who's here, one of the guys is flying it and I've done the annuals on it and it's got little feet at the bottom and if if there's a if you've got holes people accidentally burn holes in the gussets if you've got the holes in there it won't pressurize the feet and they flap around a bit but yeah. once you patch those it's, it's yeah. all back to normal and uh, this is a simple form of science that Don Cameron discovered years and years ago with the Robinson's Golly which is of course our first iconic special shape was that you can use the pressure created by the hot air on the top of the balloon to uh, force cooler air down which sinks down into those extremities like feet and hands and uh, another thing. So kookaburra, take that. The tail at the bottom was pressurised from the hot air in the top. Yep. Same, I think, with the dodo balloon that we're seeing flying here in Australia. It's It's got that big cape. Yeah. So that it comes around from the top and flows down through the gussets. And, and that's really the, the bottom of the cape is a pool of cold air. Which means it's really hard to... Uh, it's got a lot of inertia that's not helping lift. It just adds mass to it. So it, you've got uh, to really think ahead when you're flying it. Absolutely. And, of course, the poor ground crew got to get it rid of it at the end of the day. Yeah, I've crewed that balloon, so yeah, I can attest to that. And the F1 racing car with all the all the fabric rips oh, and boy. things like that. Yeah, yeah, once you start getting long, f- uh, flat things like the uh, racing car, you know, so it's yeah. it's a big exercise to uh, to get it to stay and maintain its shape. So I guess you're using CAD systems a lot and 3D modelling and so on yeah. to try and distribute and see where the loads are going to go? Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, a lot of fabric CAD systems stem from the sail-making world. And in that case, you've got uh, large X, Ys and small Z, and we have to do it in the round. So what Don did is he designed his own uh, CAD system, and uh, we have developed it from there on, where we can use that, and the cunning, the bit where we're now at is working between our 3D solid modelling uh, programmes and the graphics guys. So the graphics guys and the, techni- and the uh, engineering guys can talk to together wow. and uh, develop the, the panels. So, yeah, uh, certainly that's one area of uh, ballooning that is moving forward is the use yeah. of uh, uh, the latest CAD systems. But okay. at the other end, you've got a hand-bespoke, built, craft-made product. Yeah, and those seamstresses are amazing. I, I've done patch repairs, I've done panel replacements and load tape work, and uh, my hat's off to them. They sit there day 
after day and just churn stuff through. They're amazing to watch in action. It is, and you've got all of these intersects of the internal panels with the external panels, and you know, using the same adage, the jigsaw puzzle, it's a three-dimensional one. So, um, oh, yeah. and, uh, but there it is, all lying on the floor, and just a whole metric ton of of, of paper of like what well, looks like paper, but it's all the fabric, and it's just everywhere, and trying to contain that, and and moving through, and panels going here, and trying to shove them under the arm of the sewing machine. And, and remember, of course, yeah. something like the RAF helmet is weighing 250 kilos, so you're, you've got this little seamstress who's not pulling all at once 250 kilos, but that's the sort of loads that uh, they're having to manoeuvre in total through, the, yeah. through their sewing machines. And that's a lot of weight. It's, it's a lot of yeah. weight, yeah. I've picked yeah. up the bags, I've worked on the cruise, and you like the F1 racer, we, we got that wet one time, and um, that went from a couple of hundred kilos to God knows how much. It was, it was huge. Yeah, and that's where you've got to start to be careful, because you pull the whole weight of the balloon on one small panel and then it rips. Yeah. Yep. Now you mentioned uh, Don Cameron. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where um, Cameron Ballooning, came, or Cameron Balloons rather, came from? Well, uh, Don was an aeronautical engineer. He worked with uh, the Bristol Aeroplane Company uh, in its former days now, British Aerospace, uh, when it was based down uh, in Bristol. Uh, he, he was Scotsman, Cameron, uh, trained at Glasgow. And probably about 48 years ago, started to dabble in uh, ballooning. He's a glider pilot for, for sport. And dabble in uh, this new uh, found form of aviation. Obviously, recreation of the old one from 200 odd years ago. <laughs> and uh, he, with a bunch of fellow glider pilots, thought, saw one of the early American uh, balloons come through and thought, you know what, well, we can build one of those. And so they built the Bristol Bell. Okay. Uh, which was the first European-built uh, hot air balloon. From that, of course, started to become a, a small group of enthusiasts, and Don, uh, being one of them, uh, with all the requisite skills, set up Cameron Balloons. We're coming up to our 45th birthday in April, would you believe? That's fantastic. Yeah, great celebrations coming up in the Bristol factory and, uh, next month. So, um, and from this little seed, uh, Cameron Balloons uh, has grown into the biggest world's biggest balloon manufacturer. And doing most of the shapes that I've ever seen all seem to be Cameron, and you've got the US operation as well. Yeah, we have a sister company uh, based up in Michigan. Um, we do all the special shapes for them. Uh, one going through the factory at the moment, which I can't tell you about. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, yes, we're, we're very well known for our special shapes right the way through to the big passenger balloons. Ooh. And uh, uh, it's it's a great business to be in. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say while we're here? Well, I'd just like to say how great it is to, and what's such a warm welcome from the uh, Canberra locals are so enthusiastic. It's a very gentle meeting. I mean, uh, you go to Europe and it's often frantic and frenzied, and but here it's just calm and everyone uh, enjoys it. And let's hope yeah. um, the weekend carries on. Yeah, well, it looks like a couple of days of uh, a bit of wind, but uh, we're used to that in the UK. Yeah, well, <laughs> word is it's going to improve, and um, hopefully we will be back in the air at the end of the week. And Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, where else can you fly over a nation's capital and dip your basket in a lake? Absolutely. And, yeah. Yes. 
yesterday morning. Oh, oh stunning. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I spent 10 minutes just with the basket, just touching the surface, and I wound up dragging three kayakers to a different <laughs> part of the lake. They hooked on and came with me. You know? Brilliant. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was awesome, and didn't even get my passengers' feet wet. So oh, I was very skilled pilot, do you? Very lucky. <laughs> no, I've, my heels were getting wet because I'm heavy on my side of the basket. Oh, right. Yeah, light so on the other side. So you're skiing across. Yeah, it was great. It was great. No, I mean, that's yeah. one of the delights, and there's a beautiful city, uh, great people. What more do you want? Yeah, no, I'm really enjoying it as well. So, so glad you made it. Great to finally meet you after all these times sending emails and so on. Indeed, so, yeah. Uh, so it's nice to put a face to a name. Yeah, and uh, congratulations on the helmet. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it. The, the artwork on the back is just incredible. Yeah, well, that's uh, well down to the uh, RAF's imagination and our technology. There you go. Brilliant. Cool. Thanks, Chris. Damien Gilchrist, welcome back to uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. How are you going? Thanks, Grant. It's uh, nice to be back in Canberra at the uh, Canberra Balloon Spectacular. Cool. Now, mate, uh, you're flying that uh, brand new RAAF special shape, the giant helmet balloon. Yeah, our next generation balloon. Uh, <laughs> it's in the shape of a fighter pilot's helmet, and uh, it seems to have captured everybody's imagination. So far, great feedback, and it flies beautifully. Yeah, what is it like to fly? Because you've been flying the normal shape balloon. We've heard from, uh, heard from Cameron's about uh, Nick Purvis told us what it's like to make it. But what was it like taking her out for the first flight? Well, obviously, we're being extremely careful with it. Uh, so we're, we're treating it very conservatively. And I think that's really the long-term plan is just make it last as long as we can, keep the uh, keep the flight profiles fairly sedate and, and really make those tough decisions about when it should and when it shouldn't fly. But when we do fly, it flies like a beauty. Okay. Does it, is, it, what's, is it handle much? Because it's nice and round, so it's like a normal balloon anyhow in that respect. So is there much extra inertia behind it or things like that? Yes, certainly. Certainly coming into land, you notice that the speed won't wash off as quickly as uh, a conventional or a smaller balloon, um, so it's got quite a bit more mass as well. Rotating, uh, it doesn't want to rotate itself, uh, except when descending and climbing, it, it really does wind up a little bit, and that's because of those, uh, I guess, extra pieces that are, are in the airstream and, and doing a sort of a weathercocking manoeuvre when you're changing levels. Okay, but otherwise it's just pretty much like flying the other balloon. Yes, uh, look, all as expected really, the ground handling's are another another challenge for the guys. It's pretty heavy. It's a big heavy envelope, uh, but we've just adjusted our procedures a bit. and uh, well, we'll get better at it. We'll get in the air quicker and sort of be in amongst the pack rather than down the back as we are now. Yeah, yeah it's quite often looking back and seeing you guys having fun. But uh, uh, so, so how long does it take to set up and pack up? As Like a normal one's about 20 minutes each for set up and pack up. Yeah, it's about 45 uh, unpack, which will increase market. Yeah, we'll bring that right down probably closer to 30. 45 minutes to pack up. That's a little bit dependent on the wind. If you land in a uh, decent following wind, it empties very well. If you land in still wind, well, uh, you've got your work cut out, and we're just trying to refine procedures so we know exactly how to get those nasty, difficult bubbles of air out that uh, make the pack up difficult. Yeah, that's the one with any special shape. Once you once you get your head around, uh, you know, these velcros first, milk that bit area first. It, it works a lot better, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's still a bit of experimentation to do there, but we'll, we'll get there. And uh, any plans for touring that you're aware of? Yeah, we'll uh, hopefully be at the uh, uh, Wings over Illawarra and that's at the uh, end of April, beginning of May and then uh, we've got a, a date in the Gold Coast in late May so we'll just see how things pan out to get our um, get ourselves back on the road and show the rest of Australia. Yeah, excellent. I'll, I'll see you at Wings over Illawarra. I'm doing airshow commentary there. So. Oh, great. So Look I'll, forward to it, great. If, if you've got it tethered, I'll be able to say something about it. <laughs> great, thanks very much. Okay, anything else you'd like to say? No, no, just heads up keep an eye out for the, uh, for the Air Force balloon. We're, look forward to seeing you coming up. Cool. Okay, thanks Damien. Thanks, Grant.
getting ready to see Top Gun 3D. Uh, we're also using my uh, phone to record this, so it's less than ideal, but this will do. So with me, we have my lovely lady, Ms. Kit. Uh, Hello. We have Stephen Pam, the video man extraordinaire. Hello. And we have, well, I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is not my sticky carpet in my lounge. It's somebody <laughs> else's. But that means you've got sticky carpet. But anyhow, moving right along. <laughs> not even going into <laughs> So we're here getting ready to go and see Top Gun 3D, and this, of course, is busting your cherry in 3D, because you've never seen Top Gun, have you, Mr Simmons? I've never seen Top Gun in 2D, 1D, or even no D. <laughs> <laughs> So this should be quite interesting. We've, uh, well, the three of us have just been uh, recorded on video at the opening by the uh, staff. So um, that's rather amusing. The, um, and Mr. Pam is exceedingly happy because he's just won a copy of Top Gun in 3D on Blu-ray. So guess where we're going next to see this again? So he's just taken a photo of himself in happy mode. I'm looking forward to seeing it on the third biggest movie screen in the world. Well, there you go. Third biggest movie screen in the world, seven stories high. Um, do you have any preconceptions or any expectations, Mr. Simmons? I've got it. Look, I've act, to be perfectly honest, I'm actually slightly nervous because um, I was always concerned about going and seeing Top Gun because, because I didn't... Yes, the volleyball scene. She may actually be wanting that more than the aircraft. 
to say? I have done a little bit of research, and apparently Kelly McGillis is in this movie. Does she do the same stuff like she did in Witness? You're just us. gonna have to wait and see. Oh dear. But similar. One yeah. can only hope. Um, perhaps not quite as much prophilic, shall we say, but um, you'll see. And in 3D, it's and on seven-story high screen, it's gonna be pretty huge. Mind you though, with Kelly McGillis uh, back in 1986, yeah, that'll do me fine. Uh-huh. Anything else, folks? Let's do it. Uh, kids gone quiet in anticipation of the volleyball scene. <laughs> survived Top Gun in 3D in your face, seven stories tall. Felt like it was almost but not quite in your lap, which for a few of the scenes was rather interesting. How'd you go, Mr. Simmons? I'm amazed. I'm I'm literally blown out of my seat on several occasions. I don't know. Well, number one, that's the first, honestly, the first time I've ever seen Top Gun. It's also the first time I've ever actually seen an IMAX 3D movie. And the combination, and also with that incredible surround sound, is just phenomenal. I now see what I've missed since 1986. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> I was going to say, it hasn't been it, that long. But, yeah. But it's well, it's well, well worth it. The only thing that I would say is that Tom Cruise's teeth in 3D, when they get those close-ups and he smiles, that's just a little too Rocky Horror Freak for me. Yeah, yeah actually, I've got to say, uh, movie stars these days, the teeth are better, aren't they, you know? They've, they've gone, they've, they've uh, orthodontics has improved. That's right. Since the, uh, technology. Moving along from teeth but sticking on a physical area, hey, honey, how was the beefcake? Beefcake was was awesome. Loved the volleyball scene. Always rocks my world. <laughs> so you like the volleyball scene, huh? Yeah, but the planes are cool too. Yeah, you like the heavy so metal? What planes? <laughs> there were planes? There were definitely planes. No, yeah. the aerial combat scenes are always fantastic. Yeah. So how do you guys feel about the 3D? Those of us who have seen it before, how do we feel that the 3D enhanced the movie, particularly with those airborne scenes? Did, did it make it different? Yeah, look, it's a long time since I, I've seen it, to be honest, um, and I didn't know what to expect with the 3D, with obviously it having been shot in 2D and being remade in 3D, and at first, you know, when you start watching a 3D movie, it's always a little bit impressive, um, and then you sort of get used to it, and you forget that it's in 3D, and you just kind of get immersed in that world, don't you? Mm. Um, so for the regular dialogue stuff, it was, you know, take it or leave it, but um, it definitely, I reckon, added to the impact of the, um, the, the air-to-air scenes and especially on that huge screen as well. Like 3D on your TV, maybe not so much, but um, on that huge screen, you definitely notice it. <laughs> it was right in your lap, yeah. wasn't it? The, yeah. um, the aircraft were uh, doing all their barrel rolls and split S's right on, onto you. So mm. did that work for you? Yeah, it was great fun just being up amongst it because, you know, we were in the middle, so we got a really good mid-view mid of the, what was going on on screen. 
lots of fun. Okay. Lots of noise. Yeah. <laughs> and not only lots of noise, but I must admit that just at the right at the start, um, just adjusting to 3D, I actually found it a little disconcerting. Mm. It's, it, That's it's, good. You're doing it right then. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was. It was. It was a little unsettling to start with, but once you sort of got over the fact that, oh no, it's not a bloody great big plane that's desperately trying to <laughs> plough through my forehead, it, it does actually... I, I, look, having not seen it uh, in the 2D version, I don't know whether I could comment, but I think that that 3D reimagining of it mm. was just fantastic. I can only rave because if you ignore the... Well, in certain areas, some rather dodgy acting. Um, in most areas, some very dodgy dialogue. <laughs> and just focus on what it's meant to be, which, as I think I said in the view when I mentioned I was going to see this, that it's just a great big bloody lark. For me, yes, it was a great big bloody lark. Yep. I loved it. <laughs> Good. I don't know whether people will still get a chance to um, to watch it on IMAX by the time this comes out, um, because it's a fairly limited uh, run. So for me, the 3D, sort of take it or leave it. But hey, you know, it is out on Blu-ray now, so if you've got a big telly at home, um, you know, probably probably worth a shot. Yeah, especially uh, someone who's uh, just been speaking recently who now has it on Blu-ray and 3D and all that. Have you got a big telly? TV, Mr. Pam? Uh, it's big enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they all say. And, <laughs> and extending that... <laughs> yes. It has been said that Top Gun is a massive gay anthem. What do you think, Mr. Simmons? Are you implying that I might bat for the other team, <laughs> or are you merely just asking... Well, initially, when we went in, and I can let the uh, listeners know this, Grant initially said that volleyball scene had slightly um, homoerotic... Only uh, slightly, though. Yeah, I said, did mention beefcake. He said slightly homoerotic um, impressions. And I'd have to say that, no, Grant, you're wrong. It had massive homoerotic <laughs> impressions. I'm sorry, if they had have been going around in pink spangles, the only difference between this movie and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is that they're flying planes and not driving a bus. How about you, honey? Did you find it homoerotic or did you just find it like... I oh, just bring on those oil bodies, I say. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you can't just shoot where they swing. Well, actually, there wasn't... Well, there wasn't any swinging. Those shorts were very, very tight. <laughs> well, actually, and the wife ropes as well. Yeah. I, I was thinking in terms of oil bodies that, well, you know, the when the aircraft was on full afterburner, there was a lot of fuel coming out the back. And, man, I did notice a few oil slicks on a couple of those F-14s and when they and a couple of those F5s, they, they look like they had a you know a few patches missing that you see in a lot more clarity. So that's not the oil body you were meaning, was no. it, honey? Oh, <laughs> oh, why fronts? You're not talking about you know front view of an A4 sky. What's a, what's an F14? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of having watched the movie. <laughs> No, I've got to admit, no, I, I really did enjoy it. It was it was quite an experience, and I, look, I don't know whether I've enjoyed it as much as I would have when it first came out when I was 15 years of age. But or I, more. Or more, <laughs> but I think that... Just for the pure and sheer anticipation, the waiting, that we've been discussing this for nigh on close to 12 months, to have successfully seen the movie now, it makes me incredibly happy. I enjoyed it. And I tell you what, Grant, 
anytime you can be my wingman. I think I should be scared now because I've seen that movie and we've just had the big discussion. <laughs> and now I'm, I'm actually wondering if maybe you're right and you were more fond of Priscilla, the Queen of the Desert. But anyhow. Isn't the correct response, you can be mine? Yeah, I know. But, but after the discussion we've had, I think I want to leave that whole topic alone. <laughs> if I had to give it a score out of 10... And you do. It's going to be round about 70-12. Okay. I enjoyed it. I really, really liked it. I thought it was, as just a cinematic, as just a, 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 a cinema experience, and especially because it was in 3D, and it's also, I suppose, I'm slightly biased because it's the first movie I've seen in 3D, it was just stunning. It blew my little brain apart. Okay. I'm almost tempted to get it on DVD. <sighs> Don't I tell thought you anybody. had a copy. I do, but I haven't, un- I haven't taken it out. Oh, you're going to take it out of the plastic wrap? Yes. Wow, that's serious. You can borrow mine any time. <laughs> I don't have a Blu-ray player. <laughs> and Mr. Pam? Star ratings, is it? Yeah, very enjoyable. Um, will I be seeing it again? Um, will I be, you know, pulling it out tomorrow night to watch it again? Probably not, you know. I might just hold off a little while, but yeah, definitely enjoyed it um, and really enjoyed it on the big screen. Okay. And Margaret? <laughs> it's always good fun. It's uh, it's silly. It's funny. It's dramatic. Some of the photography is amazing. Good fun all around. Yeah, but I got to say, I think I'd prefer the uh, edit that I think my version was probably going to be similar to uh, Steve Vish's version. Takes it down to about twenty to thirty minutes, and there's none of the guff. It's just aircraft, 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 all flying, all action, lots of sound. The so. one thing I will finish up with is that I was very, very disappointed in that I did know that Kelly McGillis was in this movie, and you'd mentioned that there might have been something similar to a scene in another movie that was released around about the same time that she was also in, of which I was particularly fond of, and that was Witness. You lied. Well, I had to get you in the, in the cinema somehow. Ooh, okay, valid point. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, folks, I think, yeah, Top Gun, great movie, lots of fun, lots of ways of looking at it. Top Gun in 3D, definitely worth it if you ever get the chance. Woohoo! And I tell you what, boys, now I've got the need. The, the need for speed. And welcome back, folks. Well, I must say, Grant, that was not quite the reaction I expected from the infrequent flyer. I, I thought he might have been mortified at uh, even the very thought of watching Top Gun, much less actually sitting through it. So you must have done a good job on him there, guys. Uh, he, um, yeah, he seemed to have come through it quite unscathed. Yeah, uh, he really enjoyed it. We had a lot of fun that evening. And uh, yeah, as you heard from Miss Kit, yeah, there was something in there for everyone. Now, how many years has it taken us to get Miss Kit on the podcast? I think my wife, Kathy, has been on inadvertently somewhere in the background. In the and I think planned it once, once or twice. But uh, yeah, uh, um, what is it? Uh, started in 2009. So <clears throat> yeah, seven years. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> you know, that's not even late in railway time, mate. Oh, mate, that's early. 
Yes. But yes, that was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I mean, she does she does like Top Gun, and um, quite likes the um, the heavy metal in terms of combat jets uh, going to Avalon and and getting that um, in, incredible intense feel of a an F eighteen doing its thing and uh, you know B one bombers and so on. She quite likes that. But uh, over the last few years, I've taken her on a few of the um, older aircraft. Uh, we went up in a DC three, and she absolutely loved that. So yeah, she was up for coming along and uh, really enjoyed herself. Well, uh, I tell you what. Mate, it's really been good to get into another another program here, uh, folks. I know that uh, you know we normally do the shoutouts in the mail and all that sort of stuff. Well, um, I guess we haven't been doing a lot of podcasts, so there has been a lot of mail coming in. But you can always send us an email at contact at playingcrazydownunder.com. We uh, we're still around, and uh, we don't do as many shows as we used to, but uh, you know we still like getting out there and doing the commentary. And Grant, of course, uh, we've been doing a fair bit of air show commentary work. Uh, in fact, uh, as we record this, you've just come back from an air show up there in New South Wales. Do you want to give us a quick wrap of that? <laughs> yeah, uh, I got involved. Invited to go and do commentary at the Wings Over Maclay event at uh, Campsey in New South Wales, which is up further north than Sydney. So, uh, yeah, I, um, I jumped on a 737 and flew Melbourne, Sydney, and then an ATR-72 and went Sydney up to Port Macquarie. And then one of the guys picked me up in a uh, Cessna 185, a tail dragger, uh, one of the parachute jump planes. That was a lot of fun. Uh, we had the seats in, of course, so that was good. Um, but, yeah, I got off, I got off the ATR-72. Uh, walked through the terminal, went across the car park, and uh, he picked me up from one of the gates at the uh, GA side. And uh, yeah, jumped back in, vroom, straight out. And 12 minutes later, we were up at Kempsey. Uh, would have taken us considerably longer to drive, but yeah, we uh, we we got there and uh, then settled into the hotel. And Paul Bennett and the team had just been in China, and they actually flew back from China. They came back business class so they could get a good rest on the plane. They arrived on the front. Friday in Sydney, they got to Maitland and overnighted there and then picked up uh, one of the, I think it was a Cessna 310 and uh, were flowing up for the, for the show, arriving on the Saturday morning. And uh, yeah, most of their aircraft were already there. We had the um, the Avenger, the T-28 Trojan, the CA-3 Wirraway. There was a, one of uh, Fleet Warbirds Harvards was there. Ben Lappin was there. He was flying a small pit special. We had uh, Rod Hall brought in the uh, L39 and a Yak-52 TW. They did the Sky Aces because they had uh, Paul Bennett flying the, the Wolf Pits and Ben in the normal pits and uh, Glenn Graham leading in the uh, Yak-52, a Noseville variant. Nigel has returned to the uh, um, air show set. Mm, that's um, good news. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't been around since 2006 or so, just been focusing on other things. So he's back and he did a really good performance in a Yak-54. And uh, yeah, there's some model aircraft and uh, yours truly doing the dulcet tones of narration. It was a lot of fun. We did it on the Saturday and then afterwards the guys bumped rides. We did the Sunday, the guys bumped raw rides. Um, each evening was uh, off for dinner and a couple of drinks and so on. And then uh, this morning uh, I bugged out with Pete in the Yak-52. So I was sitting in the back of the Yak-52. Pete's flying that. And uh, Glenn Graham bought the wolf pits back. So the three of us decided we wanted to get out early before the winds picked up because we were very lucky. We've just had a major um, cold front go across South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales. Um, did a lot of uh, wind damage and things. And then uh, we had two days in the middle where it was really good and the, the air show was fantastic. I got a nice suntan. Then, yeah, today it's all picked up again. So we raced that back. The others came a couple of hours behind us, had 
had somewhat of a lumpier flight and then a bit of crosswinds on landing at Maitland. But yeah, I came back in the act, got a nice photo of Glenn on my wing. And then they drove me from Maitland across to Newcastle where I got on an A320 and uh, flew back to Melbourne. Jeez. So somewhere in between all that flying, you did some commentary. Yeah, quite a bit. That's a lot of flying, mate. Oh, yeah, it was great. I loved it. And loved there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, yeah. Also, I wanted to mention on November the 6th, actually, we're not sure if we'll have another podcast out before then, but just in <laughs> case we don't, there's actually uh, a charity event up there at Lake Macquarie Airport up uh, north of Sydney, YLMQ, for those of you who are thinking of flying up there. And it's a welcome home, Matt Hall. Now, of course, Lake Macquarie Airport is where Matt Hall's uh, based. Pretty sure he owns the whole joint, actually. <laughs> so uh, he's going to be up there. We'll have a live Matt Hall Q&A hosted by yours truly. And uh, also, uh, we're doing it in conjunction with AIPA and Angel Flight. So we'll be uh, having a bit of a, uh, a raffle there to uh, raise some uh, much-needed funds for Angel Flight, a, a really wonderful charity. Uh, you can win there a flight in Matt Hall's uh, Extra 300 uh, and all sorts of other things as well. Helicopter flights, uh, skydiving, uh, trike flights, gyrocopters, you name it. So uh, uh, we're really encouraging a lot of people to get up there. And AIPA Australia is putting on a pancake breakfast, much like they do over there in the States, Grant. AIPA over there in the States does that sort of stuff really well. We're going to kick that off and uh, try and give it a squirt here. So, uh, folks, particularly if you're a pilot, make sure you fly in. Everybody's welcome. That's on November 6th, and you can find out much more about that on Matt's website uh, at matthallracing.com. Really would uh, love to see you there. And we should also mention there, uh, as we're uh, just plugging that big radio voice style grant, that our good friends at Oz Runways will be running a masterclass as well. Baz would uh, you know, be very unhappy if I didn't mention that. <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of the Oz Runways guys were at the, uh, the at Kempsey for the show, and uh, yeah, it was good to see them. Uh, also fun because uh, the Paul Bennett team is sponsored by Avplan, so I did I did make the, the comment to, uh, in the evening that, uh, hey, what are we all doing together? Aren't, aren't you guys in you know, different teams and all that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you see, we don't mind about that. We've had Avplan uh, advertise with us before. We, we'll yeah. take anybody's money, Grant. We don't mind. Oh, mate, um, yeah, and it's like Apple and Android. It's whatever works best for you, and I know a number of people are very comfortable using Avplan. They love it. Others love Oz Runways, and as long as you're getting out there and using either of them, you're going to find your flying's a whole lot easier. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, Grant, the uh, Cessna 172 I've been flying lately is a glass cockpit version, which I am uh, <laughs> not very used to flying. And, well, you can actually, um, you know, it's got all that stuff built into the screen. I've just got to try and work out how to use the damn thing. Yeah, that's where you need to get your uh, little emulator simulator kind of thing and practice, practice, practice on the computer at home. No, there's a better solution to that, my friend. It's called flying an older Cessna. Ah. With nice, usable steam gauges in it. Yes, I'm an old man. I admit it. Mate, you should come and fly in the balloon with me. I don't have any glass. I don't have any steam. I don't have anything like that. Well, I have a GPS and I have an altimeter. Wow. They're pretty cool. Wow. No wings? No. Oh, we've been through this before, haven't we? Actually, no. We do have wings. It's on my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that red bull shirt you've got on all the time. Dang. <laughs> 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 hey, speaking of, uh, we talked about uh, the infrequent flyer uh, before Anthony Simmons, of course, so uh, we should mention our very own Kathy Mexted. We can call her our own Kathy Mexted, can't we? Well, yes, um, yes, we discovered Kathy and made her famous. Did you know that she was recently over there in the UK and those guys over there at the Plain Talking UK podcast actually snaffled her away and had her on their show? Yeah, but I think it was they knew to do that because a certain Steve Vision dobbed her in. Oh, did I? Well, you certainly seem to. Steve Fisher, that crazy guy. That crazy guy. He's just this guy, you know? Yeah. I probably should have told Kathy about that before I did it, do you think? 
Oh, well, I think she got, once she got over the initial shock of having the call, she did pretty well. Yeah, no, she did really well. So, uh, well done, Kathy. Nice work. And she's safely back in Australia now after traipsing halfway around the planet and back. She, yeah, you know, she does more miles than even you do, McCarran. Oh, yeah. Well, she's doing international. No wonder she's doing more miles. But, uh, yeah, look, there's a, a high chance she's going to be up at Oscosh, so I'm looking forward to saying hi there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she is going up there, so that'll be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it just depends on if she can get the flight up or whether the floods have subsided and she can drive. Yeah, she, well, they, you know, they've got a cub. They can fly the cub up there. Well, if it's anything like last Ozfly, it was a, she was doing quite a spectacular approach in a, in a crosswind. Well, you know, her husband's a um, 787 captain, I think. Maybe he could uh, try flying that into Narromine. You could get it in there. I'm pretty sure he could get oh, it in there at least once. Mate, you can do anything in an aircraft once. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, enough of this silliness, Grant. I think we should end the show there. That's the one, mate. Uh, time to wrap it up. I need to go off and get some sleep before work tomorrow. It's been a heck of a long weekend. And, uh, yeah, then start getting my notes ready for next weekend. I should mention, Grant, that this is actually the very last episode of PCDU that will be recorded here in the original PCDU studio. But be not, it's not the last episode, just the last one recorded here at the uh, PCDU World Headquarters. We're actually moving to a bigger and newer and fancier World Headquarters, Grant. About, about six kilometres from this one. Welcome to the new world. Yes, it'll be great if they ever finish building the place. Hey, well, the last 10% takes 90% of the time. You know that. Yes, and boy, has it taken a lot of that time, I'll tell you. But well, it's interesting well that we've both there. moved this year. I moved earlier in the year, and now you've moved. And that's right. I mean, during the, I mean, you've moved about 78 times since we started this program. But I've always, yeah, well, there is that. I've always <laughs> been stuck here in Cranbourne, but now I'm moving to Cranbourne, so all is good with the world, mate. Jeez. Oh, hey, at least you're not going from one street to the other over the road. You're actually going to need a truck, and you're going to have to move properly. No, that's right. We're moving all the way to the other end of the suburb. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah, looking forward to it. Anyway. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're much better soundproofing in that studio. Anyway, until next time, till we come to you from the new PCDU World Headquarters, well, we'll see you next time, folks. Stay safe, fly right, all that sort of stuff. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Anthony Simmons and Stephen Pam. Full show notes for this and all our episodes are at planecrazydownunder.com. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and on Facebook, Google+, YouTube and Vimeo. Feedback, suggestions, advertising inquiries. Email them through to contact at planecrazydownunder.com or mail to Post Office Box 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, 3977, Australia. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Thank you.